The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Everybody and welcome back to Critically Acclaimed, the movie review podcast where good taste and bad taste collide. Ooh, yeah. My name is William Bibiani. I'm a critic. Everybody calls me Bibbs. Uh, my name is Whitney Seibold. I too am a critic, which is fitting for a film review podcast. Thank goodness. <laughs> Otherwise, I had to pick the wrong co-host. And uh, we saw a lot. Yeah, Again. it's a big week. It's a big, big week. You know, just because not, the theaters sure are closed doesn't mean that there's uh, a... There, well, there's a lot. There's a lot yeah, of movies. That's sure a big it's week. It's a big week, but as a large week. I think... I think we're splitting hairs at that <laughs> point. Right, fine. We typically tend broad, to think about, like... Week. On a typical year, we think about, like, a big week at the box office. There'd be, like, five new releases and, like, wide distribution opening on thousands of screens. And in 2020, no. We're just looking at, hey, did we see a lot this week? Yes? Big week! <laughs> And indeed, we have a lot of movies to review. We got uh, the new horror movie, She Dies Tomorrow, the new dance movie, Work It, the new Seth Rogen comedy, An American Pickle, the new Secret Garden, The Secret Garden, something about stealing horses called Out Stealing Horses, <laughs> and something about a burnt orange heresy called The Burnt Orange Heresy. Also, oh, on our streaming club, we'll be watching a film, actually two films, with uh, one of the most ungainly titles you've ever heard of. Symbio-psycho-taxiplasm. Uh, Symbio-psycho-taxiplasm. Oh, gosh, I screwed it up. Symbio-psycho-taxiplasm take one, and also Symbio-psycho-taxiplasm take two and a half. Which, which, which came, is... Uh, the first one came out in 1968, and the sequel came out in 2005. Yeah, one of the few uh, uh, sequels to get away with a fraction. One of the only ones, other ones I can think of would be... Um... Uh, the Naked, Naked Gun, Gun movies uh, yeah. each had fractions. Yeah, so so I assume symbiote psychotaxoplasm is part of the Naked Gun universe. Sure. Why not? <laughs> uh, before we get to any of that, though, uh, we typically don't talk about the news. No. Uh, in fact, when we first started doing podcasts uh, together almost a decade ago at this point, mm -hmm. uh, one of the mandates at the B-Movies podcast was that we discuss film news on, yeah. on a weekly basis. Yeah, the, the casting was, rumors, the uh, so-and-so. Well, casting rumors. It was just casting rumors. Well, and director attachments and the announcements that this property had been picked up by this studio. You know, there, the typical stuff. There wasn't a lot to talk about or speculate on. We just sort of say it and sort of riff for a few minutes because that's what the mandate was. And... When it came time to do our own podcast, that was the first thing we were eager to abandon. Yeah, don't like, care. We don't want to do the film news because film is not a 24-hour news cycle. Mm -hmm. However... Also, anticipation should not be a film critic's job. No, looking forward to stuff and speculating on films we haven't seen isn't our beat. Uh, yeah, so, nor should it be. I yep. honestly think it's kind of... 
that's antithetical to criticism. We're talking about a movie um, we're making up in our heads at that point. Even I, if you've seen a trailer, you still haven't seen it. Yeah, and I th- I think that's you know fun conversation to have around the water cooler, but it's sure. not something that should be reported on in the news. Yeah, uh, at least not consistently. Yeah. Like occasionally we'll talk about, hey, that trailer looks fun. You want to talk about it? Maybe, but when that's all you ever do, that's not really movie news anymore. And I don't even think that's the, even remotely movie criticism. And it's just we didn't care. But there is a big piece of news that dropped this week uh, mm-hmm. that I wanted to talk about. Because, and I think we should. I agree this, with you. Because this is a big deal. Uh, now, this was floated, uh, I think, last year. Yeah, around November. Uh, yeah, around November of last year. This idea was floated that uh, the Paramount Accords, which were uh, signed into law in the 1940s, mm-hmm. were finally going to be dissolved. Now, uh the Paramount Accords were kind of a big deal at the time. Oh, they were, in a, they were no, they completely changed the film and, industry. Uh, they were huge. That, that was me underplaying it. I wanted uh, to make sure people knew that. Okay. No, seriously, this is a big, this is a big, big this, deal. This is a big deal. Uh, there was a time when uh, movie studios were kind of were literally running the show. They would not only make the movies, but they had actors under contract. Actors who worked for Paramount, for instance, couldn't go to other studios unless there was some sort of special, like, subcontractor deal. Mm-hmm. They couldn't just... Actors were not permitted to make movies for whoever they wanted. It had yeah. to be for a very specific studio. And on top of that, the studios had very specific arrangements with distributors uh, with, and in a variety of ways, most notoriously block booking, in which, uh, oh, you want to get, um, I don't know, Casablanca? Well, you have to take like these eight mm. other movies you don't want and you have to play them even if there's no market for them. And that really just squeezed out competition so that other, yeah, other studios couldn't compete and independents and international movies had no place to go. Block, block booking uh, continued into the home video era. Yep. Uh, which makes and, sense. And t- TV movie uh, yeah, syndication as well. Indeed. Yeah. You want Star you, you Wars? Want okay, big, you got to take these other eight movie, films. You want a big TV movie, but you have to show all these other TV movies. It made more sense in a video store because you're just sort of putting space on a shelf. Yeah. You can actually have hundreds and hundreds of movies. And if they don't sell, you can just sell them off as yeah, used VHSs exactly. or DVDs. It's, it's, it's perhaps not evil in that context. Liquidating but, actual yeah. stock. But uh, in in the Paramount Accords, uh, it, there was some really horrible monopolizing going on. Yeah. Uh, so the Paramount Accords were signed into law in order to prevent uh, a film monopoly. Mm-hmm. There would be nothing from stopping a single studio with enough money from buying all of the theaters in a certain area and showing only their own product. Yeah. Uh, and that muscled out all competition. Mm-hmm. It made for less variety in the marketplace. And they said, we can't have that. That's not. Right. That's unfair. We want... A lot more uh, studios to have their say and to, to play in this playing field. And once the uh, Paramount consent decrees were uh, mm. uh, put into practice, the entire industry changed. All of a sudden, uh, studios became less dependent on B pictures, which they knew could get shown no matter what. Uh-huh. And they started making sure that all of their main sort of A list studio product was really up to snuff Mm. in order to actually compete in that marketplace. So studios started putting more effort into their work. But also, on top of that, theaters had more freedom to show films that weren't from studios. And And so we started uh, seeing the rise of independents like Roger Corman mm. and William Castle, and also suddenly a major influx of international films that previously there wasn't a market for because there was no space in the marketplace for it. Because the studios were muscling everything out. So we started seeing films. 
films by Akira Kurosawa. Mm-hmm. We started getting uh, uh, films yeah. from Italy and France in greater numbers, and that completely opened up the, the marketplace and indeed opened up audience tastes so that tastes had a stronger uh, uh, ability yeah, to evolve and to actually uh, uh, sort of drive the industry rather than the industry driving tastes because you get what you get, damn it. Indeed, there was a time in the late 50s where uh, you could shoot a film and and develop a print yourself and just take that print down to your local movie house and say, hey, show this. Yeah. And you would get a theatrical release. Yeah, I mean, there, still, there would be, they, there they would be like do that. I mean, almost no middlemen whatsoever. Well, you it's could, just you made it and you get to show it at your local movie and house that's not, if the manager agrees to and it. That's not even necessarily in the fifties. Yeah. That, that that to an extent that could even persist today in like smaller movie houses. But mm. um, if you saw uh, the really really great uh, uh, Netflix film Dolomite is my name, that's oh, one yeah. of the reasons that uh, Dolomite was able to be screened in the first place. Oh. Everyone thought there was no market for it, so uh, uh, Rudy Ray Moore. Uh, bought out like a a, a movie theater mm. or, or paid for paid to rent it basically mm. and to show his movie and uh, it was a huge hit and all of a sudden people actually wanted to screen it so yeah. uh, the, anyway the industry completely changed yeah and, now, uh, and as time passed however mm-hmm. uh, and as studios became bigger and bigger and bigger as they did all, most of the major studios just continued to grow large RKO fell out of favor. But the big ones ones were all Some were swallowed up by other studios. Warner Brothers, 20th Century Fox, Universal. uh, Disney. Disney. Eventually. uh, Became sort of like key power players in this, but there were a lot of other studios as well. Mm -hmm. Uh, And this was... The fact that there was so much out there and there were so many people, so many players was no more evidence than when we were uh, teenagers in the 1990s, Mm. when there was this big boom of indie cinema. uh, And... There was just so much texture in the marketplace, and you could get all kinds of different movies. And, and they could be hits. Yeah. There was, yeah, enough, yeah. there was enough space that they could actually make a huge like, amount of money. Yeah, like something like Cinema Paradiso could actually like capture the, the popular attention yeah, or, for a little or, bit. Or if you want to go more genre, something like The Blair Witch Project, which, yeah, is, not, yeah, which was, is not purchased by a major studio. You know, it, was it was brought like, by Artisan Entertainment? Memory or, Serves, or, yeah, uh, and it was, it was gigantic. Yeah. So, so it, it's it was a really really exciting time, and you might have noticed in maybe the last fifteen years or so how much of the products that you're watching is owned by one company. Yeah. And uh, Disney bought up the Marvel Entertainment machine, and they were able to turn it into this big mint. They were just minting money with their superhero movies, yeah. and then they bought Star Wars and the biggest blockbusters of the year were all made by this one company or maybe one or two companies. Yeah, Warner Brothers yeah, had Warner, some of yeah. them. Universal had some of them as yeah, well. Yeah, Universal was... had like the Fast and Furious movies. But we started to think of movies in terms of uh, real estate occupied by these gigantic yeah. blockbusters. Power was beginning to get reconsolidated mm. in yeah, a yeah. really, 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 really big way. And there were practices going on that were basically kind of trying to return to the pre-Paramount consent decrees. Uh, for example, like, oh, you want to show Avengers Endgame? You need to show it on this many screens. This, and yeah, as a result, was, uh, you, you can't show stuff from our competitors, can you? Yeah, the, and uh, in fact, uh, and Disney is in particular guilty of this. They would mm-hmm. go to movie theaters and say, yeah, we'll, 
show Avengers Endgame, it has to play for six weeks. Yeah. Whether or not it's making money, it has to stay on one of your screens. Yeah, otherwise we won't, yeah. we won't give well, it to and, you. And if you open, that. it has to open on like a certain percentage of your screens if you're a multiplex. Uh, this was really bad if you're a two-screen theater in the middle of nowhere and they're the early theater playing something. After six weeks, everybody in town has seen that movie. They're not going to yeah. see it over and over again. Well, some are, but it's not well, necessarily maybe so, worth but it. That's not yeah. a good way to make a lot of money. You have to yeah. turn over product a little bit because faster the, than it, that. It's all focused on mm. what's good for Disney and not necessarily and, and, what's uh, good for the marketplace. And indeed, they also started changing uh, movie theater rules, and this really pissed me off. Like, if you had one of those golden membership cards at a movie theater or, mm. like, free passes, yeah. you couldn't use them specifically on Disney films. Yeah, those like, you gotta they, pay. They were, they were changing the rules so that they could get a little bit more extra money, yeah. and uh, the rules were becoming, were becoming more and more draconian as years passed until just this last week when those rules are just all out the window. Well, And it's not necessarily... Mm. Now Disney could, instead of just bullying an AMC multiplex, they could just buy that theater uh-huh. and make whatever rules they want. And not show any not, any yeah. movies from any other studio. Now, that is actually a serious problem, and it's going to be a serious problem for those of us who care about theatrical distribution. There is more complexity and nuance to that. However, for example, uh, based on what I've read, it looks like there's going to be what is called a sunset period, uh-huh. which means that for two years it's going to be more or less status quo to give everyone an opportunity to adjust to this mm. new uh, paradigm in which we're going to live yeah. in theaters. So it's not going to be immediate Uh however it is coming and there is going to be a situation where people are just going to buy up theaters because Mm. theaters are not doing well right now this some people might say this is actually the best thing possible for theaters because this way theaters can survive but it will not be good for the types of offerings that theaters can actually have and that is a huge downside it's also worth noting that uh, what we call vertical integration which is what happens when you own uh, the production and the distribution and mm. basically everything that can everything be done with the top product. To, from top to bottom. Yeah, yeah. There's, there's no competition. You own every single aspect of the product and its supply chain. Um, in this modern era, the things admittedly have changed. And one of the arguments in favor of deny, like abandoning the Paramount consent decrees and potentially letting new litigation drive the current industry. And there's there's a not unreasonable argument for this, but I think it was a bad idea to eliminate it altogether. Hmm. Um, is that now that theaters are not the only source where people are getting movies, and in fact, they're actually not even the main source where people are getting no, movies. Especially during the pandemic, everybody's at home. Yeah, but uh, the argument is, and it's not entirely unreasonable, I admit this, is that those specific set of guidelines no longer apply. However, I would argue that having the supply chain go from, you know, producing the movies to distributing them only via your own streaming service Hmm. is functionally the same as vertical integration. For years, I've been waiting for someone to challenge that and to just say, hey, listen, that's a problem. And in fact, there was a court case not that long ago, mm. in which the makers of the Fox television series Bones... I remember this, yeah. The makers of the Fox television series Bones sued 20th Century Fox for distributing Bones on Hulu, the streaming service that Fox owned the majority stake in, because in so doing, they prevented this really hit show. Bones was a monster. People forget that because it wasn't like talked about a lot, but the ratings were through the roof. Right. It, was it lasted huge. a long time, too. It lasted yeah. a really long time. It was very, very popular. Lots of good uh, uh, um, 
advertising money was thrown at this thing, mm-hmm. and repeats of this thing were expected to be big business, and it should have been a bidding war. And in fact, many people have a contract with various studios that says that the studio will have it, you know, will pursue the most amount of money so that the people behind the movie would, who get like back end deals, Mm -hmm. a percentage of the home video market or whatever, right. Will actually get a good deal. The court ultimately agreed that, that, that Fox putting bones out on Hulu without even trying to shop it around anywhere else was essentially self-dealing. Yeah. And in fact, there were, according to the article that I wrote, there were executives who signed both parts of the contract. So, like, I'm <laughs> signing the Fox part of the contract where we made bones and I'm signing the Hulu part of the contract where we agreed to distribute bones. That's just not a thing. Mm. So I expected that court case to cause a major problem and have, and so all of a sudden all these people who made all these Marvel movies would be like, hey, it's cool that you want to show them on Disney+, Plus, but we'd get more money if you showed them elsewhere. Hmm. Aren't you screwing us over? Yeah. And the answer yeah. would be, yeah, mm-hmm. potentially. So I'm waiting for that to come to okay. hit a crest. And I think that is might be coming and that could, uh, Disney has lawyers like you wouldn't believe and they're going to fight for that. And I'm sure a lot of other studios will too, because Warner Brothers has HBO Max and Universal has Peacock, and they all want to get a piece of this, and they all want to control their own product as much as they can. It's worth noting that the home video market as we knew it probably wouldn't have existed if we started with streaming services and every studio could just completely control where their product goes rather than making a physical product that then had to be re-rented or resold. Through through an intermediary. Yeah, Yeah. the studios probably didn't like that very much. I mean, they fought uh, uh, in the Supreme Court to prevent people from recording movies off their TV with a VCR. That was their property. Yeah, and the Supreme Court actually uh, found in favor of people with VCRs. Uh, and uh, one of the key players in that court case, mm-hmm. Fred Rogers. Yep. Mr. Rogers w- appeared in court to say, I want kids to tape my show because I think my show is valuable. Yeah. And uh, and uh, whether or not I'm getting money, I want the message to be out there. So he said, v- and that way v- the VCR was essentially saved by Fred Rogers. Yeah. Now it's and, t- and pornography. Well, and a lot of other things <laughs> as well, but and Mystery Science Theater 3000 and a whole bunch of other things yeah. that were saved. There's a ton of movies that are still like not readily available on home video that people can only access because someone recorded them off of basic cable one day. Mm. You know, that's and thank goodness because otherwise some of these things would be functionally lost. Um, it's hard to say exactly the impact that the Justice Department function. I mean, they're not like. They're not like tearing up the contract. They're basically just deciding we're not going to do anything with this anymore. It's Mm. it's irrelevant now in the modern landscape. And again, there's an argument to be made that maybe the way it was written, it was. But I do think this will be relitigated somewhere down the road. However, the damage might be done and we simply might uh, be ending this new completely corporate controlled era of movie distribution. And I don't think that's necessarily a good thing. I think there might be a lot of problems with this in the future. We need to keep an eye on it. What it's going to do is it's just going to uh, eat eat into uh, variety. It's going to allow smaller players uh, less leeway to release their product Mm -hmm. uh, because now they only have to deal with power players. Mm -hmm. I think what we need to wait for is what's going to come first, uh, an active relitigation of the Paramount Accords, or is there going to be a big sale? Mm. Is Disney going to put up several billion dollars to buy Regal Cinemas? I would you know, what, be. What, what, I, which of those things is going to happen? I'm, pre- first? I'm predicting Disney will do it. I'm predicting uh, uh, Amazon will try to do it. Oh, yeah, I'm, yeah. You know, you know who should do it? Hmm. Paramount. 
Paramount. <laughs> Let's be honest here. A would be beautiful irony. B, <laughs> B, Paramount is one of the studios that's actually struggling right now. And if mm. Paramount owns cost, all the theaters, look, if yeah. Paramount bought AMC and Regal and just said, fuck it, you can't show Disney anymore. You can only show our Star Treks. <laughs> that would be like, I mean, like, listen, I, that would still be fucked up. Uh, for audiences, would, that would be fucked up. But it, there's a poetry there. there. There's a certain poetry there. And it would admittedly throw a massive curveball rather than just lead to the inevitable ascendancy of Disney to this like unstoppable mm. you know Fritzlong metropolis entertainment monolith that just feeds people into the machines yeah yeah um yeah ask uh look up uh what <laughs> where Disney gets their special effects sometime oh, yeah. it's not a pretty picture yeah. yeah there's there's a lot of uh underbidding and mm-hmm. like uh, underbidding wars going on to what companies can work on the special effects for these gigantic movies. And there and there are companies that will be like hired to do a major movie and then after the major movie goes they're completely dissolved and everyone loses. This work happened with Sonic the Hedgehog. Yeah. Those four people they had to completely redo all the VFX in a very tight uh, 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 time frame in order to make all the fans happy and then they were all laid off. It was so right. fucked up. Um, and they're like Oscar winning visual effects houses that were just mm. treated like crap and like a, they, yeah. it, there's there's a lot of problems in the industry right now and this is just the latest and, and, and it's going to be a problem. It, it doesn't spell anything good is, yeah. is the problem. Yeah, there, there may be uh, theater chains that survive specifically because of this and on the surface that might seem good but if ultimately they're not actually helping the marketplace mm. one has to wonder is that even worth it? But mm. we will deal with this as it, as it goes again it will take a couple of years for this to truly take effect in that time smaller distributors or even uh, uh, smaller studios might be able to fight this in court who knows what could happen anything can happen really mm-hmm. so we will keep an eye on it and if there's one thing that I've learned is sometimes when change happens mm-hmm. people who are lovers of you know cinema the old ways get all up in arms mm-hmm. and sometimes it was not worth it. Everything turned out okay. Let's just be fair. That's yeah. that's a thing that can happen. So people can panic and nothing, ha- nothing yeah. comes so, of so it. So maybe, uh... maybe, maybe I'll fully grant you. Maybe we're worried about nothing, but I don't think we are because if you look at the precedent, if a studio can monopolize the marketplace, they will. They're in the business of making money with their art. They're not in the business of just sort of giving it away. Mm. They want to make money and they want to dominate places. If that was the case, Disney would be like, oh, sure, show Endgame as often as you want. And then if something else cool comes along, go ahead and take it. Mm. No. Pettiness is a part of the industry. (laughs) Competition is a part of the industry. We've seen it go bad before. Trying to cut competition out of the industry is part of the industry. We've seen it happen before. And don't pretend that just because... There's it a happened studio 75 that, years ago. Yeah. It's not going to happen again today. And, and don't pretend that just because there's a studio whose output you like, does, that that means that everyone involved in that studio is kind-hearted. Mm. That's not necessarily the case. Some of them can be very bloodthirsty. So we will <laughs> see a, how it goes. You know, what, is, what is it Noam Chomsky said? If you hand something over to a corporation, you're not handing it over to a nice person. Mm-hmm. So anyway. I, I did want to talk about that because I think no. it's hugely significant. And I think it is something to... Uh, Maybe not worry about yet, but to think about and prepare for because it's the landscape, as much as it's already changed, is going to change dramatically more within mm-hmm. the next year or so. Oh, I hear you. Yeah. So uh, we'll keep an eye on it. We wanted to make sure that people who were perhaps only casually following film or if they follow film news are following just like, oh, well, the new mutants finally come out. 
that there's other stuff going on and really needs it's it's kind of the important stuff. So if we cover a news story on here, it means it's probably a pretty big deal. So that's our philosophy anyway. Otherwise, we just let it slide. Uh, but now it's time to move on to the new release movies. Whitney, what do you think the big release of the week is? Um, how about an American Pickle? Yeah, that's probably it. Uh, <laughs> so an American Pickle is a new movie starring Seth Rogen and Seth Rogen in a dual role. Uh, and it is available on HBO Max. It was going to be a theatrical release, but they decided to send it to Warner Brothers' mm. big streaming service. It's a, you know, it's a Seth Rogen comedy. Those usually do pretty, pretty well. And, and they're, yeah. Um, I've, I've said this before about Seth Rogen. He he he's a hit maker, but he makes the weirdest movies that you that you would see be his. Often, uh, yes. Like he he's behind things like. Uh, what uh the uh the end of the world one his title i just oh, uh, completely <laughs> brain farted um uh this is the end this is the end i almost said the end yeah. there's this is the end there was the animated film sausage party mm-hmm. uh there was the interview uh which wasn't released and then it was these are actually kind of daring movies yeah, these, in a lot of ways like the interview was about a real like assassinating a real world leader who actually pushed back on that film yep so it got into, into some political hot water by making that movie uh. and his movies also tend to be Apart from Terrence Malick, the only place wow. you'll hear, like, actual American views of modern spirituality discussed with frankness. That's I'm a... Totally that is a and I'm totally serious about that. That is a statement. That. Yeah. Because thinking about the ends is near. That's about the Christian apocalypse. It's about... It's not the, the end. It's, this is the end. This is the end. Ah, oh, damn it. Uh, <laughs> this is the end is about the Christian apocalypse. Mm-hmm. It's about the rapture. And, yeah. uh, of course, the, the joke is all these Hollywood types playing themselves are at a big Hollywood party. Mm-hmm. And they don't notice that the rapture com- is coming. You know why? Because there are all these Hollywood types. None of them are rapture. Yeah, none of them were <laughs> decent kind of, enough to not, like, mm-hmm. to not be taken to heaven during the apocalypse. Mm-hmm. So they all have to suffer horribly. It's a statement. Sausage Party is basically all about how uh, the gods that we have for themselves are designed to destroy us all, and the mm. only way to save ourselves is to kill the gods. Mm. Which is, but, it's, uh, but told from the perspective of grocery store items. Yeah, it's a it's a it's a bold film. I think it's hard to say, and I think it's fair it's, to it's say not, not as funny as it thinks it is. But yeah, I, I appreciate the ideas in it, and I think it's fair to say that American Pickle is a film that I think attempts. With modest success at best, mm. to discuss the way that uh, uh, American history and the people and the belief systems that led to our current state of affairs mm. in America are still alive and influencing us and part of the framework mm. of the American identity, even as we fight against them. Uh, I also think it's uh, Seth Rogen very actively wrestling with his own Jewish identity. Yeah. Uh, he gets to meet his past self, and he plays his own past self. Yeah. It's a pretty literal metaphor, in fact. Yeah, so for- in America... So the plot is uh, uh, Seth Rogen plays a Jewish immigrant to America in the early 20th century who uh, came from a you know a, 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 a bad place where his wedding was interrupted uh, mm. by uh, um, Cossacks. Mm. Who just rampaged in and killed everybody? Yes. So him and his wife, uh, played by the great Sarah Snook, who's not in it enough. Uh, I, I think I don't think she has any lines either. No, she has a few. She has oh, a few. Okay. She has a few, but she's not in it very much. Um, they 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 immigrate to America, 
And then shortly after they immigrate to America, she uh, is pregnant and it looks like they might have a future. Uh, he is working at a pickle factory and he falls into the pickle vats hmm. and just as the pickle factory is condemned. So they close up the vat and he is pickled in the brine. And then a hundred years later, he emerges from the brine because someone accidentally opens it up again. Hmm. And in perhaps the only truly funny joke <laughs> in this movie, like there's a lot of like, ah, hmm. but like actually funny joke there's a press conference in which they explain yes he was he was pickled and so he's here a hundred years later and someone in the press junket says uh what how do you expect this to believe that that sounds like terrible science and they just say well we have all of these charts and they all go hmm yes the science does work out we're sorry we asked it's a little self-aware humor. Yeah. That, that's a dumb premise, isn't it? It's a really about, dumb premise. About a guy in the past who's pickled. This is something that in a previous generation, like, it, it would have been, a, I don't know, like a Steve Martin comedy. Like a it would have been an Adam Sandler comedy. An Adam Sandler comedy. This is an Adam Sandler comedy. Like, Maybe this something is... with Sinbad. Yeah. Uh, like a feature film with Sinbad. Which were always bad news, by the way. Oh, that's not true. <laughs> uh, um, uh, uh-huh. Hang on, hang uh, uh, yeah, on. House yeah. Guest with Phil Hartman. Okay. That's a perfectly mm. pleasant that's, comedy. That's fine. Okay, it's good enough. <laughs> it's a perfectly pleasant comedy. I also, I, I haven't seen it since I was a kid, but I have somewhat fond memories of First Kid. I haven't seen First he, Kid. He played a Secret Service agent who was protecting the president's son, who was a bit of a brat. And they I, learn I, important lessons about being mature. And it's aggressively out. harmless, but if mm. memory serves, it's not bad. And that, I haven't seen it in forever, though. And that genie movie was just awful. <laughs> um. I was baffled that people thought that was a thing. Yeah, there was that, this that, thing. If you if you missed it, people had this collective false memory that Sinbad starred in a movie where he played a genie. <laughs> he didn't. He didn't. I don't. I don't know where the hell this Sinbad has never played a genie. It's, it's, I think they were just misremembering the Shaquille O'Neal movie Kazam. But mm-hmm. like, and I understand you'd want to block a lot of that movie out. Yeah, that movie sucks. But like, I don't understand. This false memory of a whole film. Like, how do you... I understand, like, having a false memory of a part of a movie. Like, like the that... one that I actually I actually fell for was uh, at the end of Moonraker. Oh. Uh-huh. Uh, so there's this villain, Jaws, who appears in The Spy Who Loved Me and the follow-up James Bond film Moonraker in the 1970s. Played by Richard Keel. Yeah, the great Richard Keel. Super tall actor, mm-hmm. wonderful presence. Actually not that bad an actor if you let you let him act, but... Um, he typically played just, like, big, tough guys. Oh, was, he was hired because he's big. That's yeah. pretty much it. it. It was a niche. He fell mm-hmm. into it. But if you gave him lines, he actually wasn't that bad. Um, and he played this guy, Jaws, who had these metal teeth, and he could, like, bite through, like, mm-hmm. girders and things like that. And he was all tough, and he fought James Bond a couple of times. Uh, I think the only James Bond henchman to come back from multiple films. I think you're right. I, I think yeah. that's true. That might have been... I think the Cena Royale might have had, like... Um, like Quantum of Solace might technically because it like follows like up immediately, yeah, kind of. But uh, at the end of Moonraker, he actually like falls in love with someone, and uh, it seems like he just gets like a happy ending. Like they just hmm. they just let Jaws go, and, and, and he actually has a spoken line. He, he toasts as well. Here's to us. Yeah, uh, hmm. but uh, the whole big thing is when he like has this moment with this girl he like smiles and you see his big teeth and she smiles back and there is this collective false memory of her having braces i (laughs) i thought she did too turns out no no she just smiles but her having braces a fun fun gag i think think it's it makes so much sense we assume that's where it was going (laughs) so the fact that they didn't just feels like a mistake but anyway so there's this whole false thing with uh, sinbad i forget how we got on that 
uh, just because this is a Sinbad premise for an American pickle. Yeah, it's kind of yeah, a, it's, it's kind of a dumb yeah, fish yeah, out of water yeah. premise. And uh, yeah. it it stems from uh, this this old belief that Mel Brooks had that you know mm. if you joke about food, that's funny. Mm. If you joke about the food you get at a deli, a Jewish deli, that's even funnier. According to Mel Brooks. According to Mel Brooks. And, and, and Weird Al as well. A lot of people have gone on record saying, oh yeah, go, Jewish deli food is just like good, is comedy gold. I don't know why. I've never, no, I've actually uh, never heard like, that before. Oh, okay. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a theory I've seen floated in the past. Anyway, uh, Seth Rogen uh, has Tra- woken up in the present day and everyone he knows and loves is dead. And they he find... Tra- he tracks down a descendant of his. Yeah, I think it's his grandson mm-hmm. played by Seth Rogen. Looks just like him, except he doesn't have a big poofy beard. Mm-hmm. And uh, so he's going to live with his grandson. And at first they're pretty jovial and he's having fun, like, showing him things like, I could make seltzer water, like mm-hmm. that kind of thing. But grad- and, and, he, and he's completely unprepared to talk to somebody from the past. Because who would be? Yeah. You know, it's, it's, it comes from a completely different world, a completely different set of beliefs, a completely different uh, background. Well, and, and, he's, and he's sort of shallowly fixated on a lot of the vagaries of modern life. Uh, online living, making apps. Uh, you know, yeah, well, that's his ha- job. He makes ha- apps. Yeah, ha- hashtags, Instagram influence. He can't think outside of those terms. And the conflict that stems between Seth Rogen and Seth Rogen is that Seth Rogen believes that Seth Rogen has lost touch with his family, with his mm-hmm. religion, with his past. Which, he's, of course, Seth Rogen completely represents mm. but seth rogan doesn't appreciate it it's, it's that's a good metaphor tradition versus modernity yeah, yeah. That, that's a perfectly good metaphor and i love the idea of exploring that in the film they have a big fight uh uh seth rogan coming from an older era uh is more willing to get into a fist fight over anything mm. and as a result seth rogan is arrested along with seth rogan Problem is, he was just about to debut an app that was based off of finding the most ethical products, and now whenever you Google his name, the first thing you find is he was arrested for assault and battery. <laughs> so his whole career is ruined, uh, and he blames Seth Rogen for it, so they have a falling out, and they both go their separate ways, and ironically, the old Seth Rogen ends up becoming an enormous success with his old-fashioned, uh, uh, what, what do you call him, um, when you make pickling. it? Pickling. Well, it's pickling, but like it's, um, when you, when you make something, like, Uniquely, artisanal, artisanal pickles. Okay. <laughs> he makes artisanal pickles using salt, cucumbers, and rainwater, uh, and and that becomes a huge sensation. And now on, Seth on Rogen the streets is, of Brooklyn, all the hipsters line up to get it. And and now and now younger Seth Rogen wants to destroy him, and it becomes this feud between the old and the new. It, and how they both have it, things to offer each other, but they're not like joining hands. Uh, I appreciate. Th- what Seth Rogen appears to be going through in a movie like An American Pickle. Yeah. And I appreciate all of the themes and all of the ideas behind this idea of uh, trying to come to terms with a traditional life and trying to live in a modern world and how those things are frequently at odds. In fact, they are constantly at odds. There's an earnestness uh, this, to this that yeah. I genuinely admire. Yeah, and Seth Rogen is clearly... he's. He wrote this, and he's clearly working his way through something very real in his own heart. What I wish it was, was (laughs) funnier. (laughs) Not a lot of the gags really land. It kind of meanders. It's very slight. It's just this this poof of a thing. Uh, And when it starts getting into sort of the the wacky shenanigans, and he becomes a 
celebrity artisanal pickler and then he's busted for not having clean enough pickles and then he starts going on a talking circuit like all of this stuff yeah it's a little too broadly wacky to carry the premise along with it. it's for me it's not even that it's wacky for me it's like too on point like we've seen these sorts of uh, because once we start seeing the sort of trajectory hmm. of old school Seth Rogen and how he has a good idea, how he has old fashioned methods that people really appreciate, but he's not familiar with things like, you know, OSHA rules or how to work with interns or when he gets on Twitter, he ends up saying the things he actually believes. But because hmm. it's in the 1920s, yes. those things are extremely backward and people get really, really mad. But then there's the backlash to the backlash where some people think he's just fighting for freedom of speech. Mm. And so he ends up getting fans who just hate the other fans that he lost. And there's something that is actually pretty on point about how once you have celebrity, it's kind of hard to take that away from you. And mm -hmm. there will always be someone out there who is eager to jump on your gravy train because you have notoriety and you will sell tickets to a speaking tour. You can sell products no matter mm -hmm. what. And I kind of appreciate the sort of um, kind of the hard boiled kind of look at the way that fame and celebrity kind of works today and the way that we take things that should be genuine and chew them up and spit them out or yeah. we take things that are actually really negative like some of the hateful things that older Seth Rogen believes and we turn that into monetary monetized entertainment mm. there's a lot to be said there for me it's not that it's too wacky for me it's that it's too pointed for how not funny it is. <laughs> and that's the thing that ultimately kills this movie for me. It's like, I, I appreciate everywhere they're going with it. It's thoughtful. Mm. Seth Rogen's actually really good in this. But it's a comedy, and I laughed, like, twice. Mm. And that's kind of all there is to it, really. And there are some comedies that I quite enjoy because they are affable rather than funny. Sure. But that that's also the death of certain comedies, especially mm -hmm. one with such a strange premise as an American pickle. Now, there's a yeah, way this isn't to... Like a, this isn't like people hanging yeah. out and you're hanging out with them so you don't care if you laugh that hard. This mm -hmm. is plot-driven. Like, yeah. This is not uh, about that. There is a, a really dynamite version of this directed by like a Hal Ashby type mm -hmm. that is really delving into the symbolism and the absurdity of it. Yeah. Uh, I don't think the filmmaker, this is his first, I forgot his name, is no, his first feature. It's uh, not. Uh, for um, solo feature. It's not. Um, it is. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry, it is. Sorry. Yeah. He, he co-directed uh, the independent uh, uh, post-apocalyptic uh, dance movie, The FP, which is not as good as it sounds. It has, it has a fun premise. The premise is fun. It's Dance Dance, dance Revolution rules like the dystopian wasteland. That's fun. Uh, I, I actually don't enjoy watching it very much. <laughs> okay. but, but that's... I, I'm actually the minority in that one. I know most people like that movie. Maybe. I find it juvenile in a bad way. But. Uh, there's... Uh, but yeah, there's not, not enough uh, nuance in his direction to mm. have this be a, a straight-up dramedy, which is mm. what I think uh, was what Seth Rogen was writing. Yeah. Uh, the director... I think it's, it's incredibly earnest, mm. uh, and it's the earnestness that I appreciate, even if the humor doesn't work, and I think the plot is kind of stupid after a while I, I don't think the plot is stupid I just don't think it ends up supporting itself very well uh, credit where credit is due Brandon Trost I may not like his the first film he co-directed the FP but he's actually been a very hard working director of photography and he shot some very good movies including Can You Ever Forgive Me 
Oh, that, that's a wonderfully yeah. dreary looking movie. Uh, uh, Lords of Salem. Okay. Yeah. The Rob Zombie movie. Yep. Uh, uh, Halloween 2, Rob Zombie's Halloween 2, which is actually very fun and certainly very good looking. Mm. Um, so, he's got talent. Um, I think the material here is just too dry. Mm. I think it's just kind of droll. And, yeah, I can't imagine if this was, like, in the multiplexes that this would set the... the, the the theater no, ablaze. It would, be, would, it would be a footnote, that's for sure. It would be a footnote. This is actually probably a stronger pick to debut on a streaming service because you've got some major stars in it, because it is very easy to consume. It's less than 90 minutes long. Mm. Um, it's very punchy. It's just not all that funny. But if you don't have to go all the way out to the theater and pay for parking and spend $20 on tickets, um, it's it's actually just kind of worth it. So this isn't like a wash, but I'm just kind of disappointed that they couldn't make more out of this because mm. there's so much material here that they obviously really care about. Yeah. So it's a bit of a shame. Uh, why don't we uh, talk next about one of the films that you saw that I didn't? Why don't you tell me about The Secret Garden? Okay, um, The Secret Garden is uh, well, it's The Secret Garden. That's based on the uh, the nineteen eleven novel by uh, Francis Hodgson Burnett. You yep. probably read it in school. Yeah, uh, it's it, about a bunch of kids who find a garden mm, mm. that is secret, and well, it gives them superpowers. It's about an, an orphan who's mm. sent to live with her cantankerous uncle, and mm. uh, it's really strict inside. And there's one kind housekeeper and one really mean housekeeper, and uh, she has a cousin who uh, doesn't leave bed and can't walk. Yep. And uh, and he's very, very depressed about his lot in life, and she goes exploring the uh, countryside and finds this big magical wall and climbs over it, and inside is... A secret garden. It's mm-hmm. a beautiful place where it's just springtime all the time. It's semi-magical. Mm-hmm. Gives uh, them superpowers. Doesn't give them superpowers. Okay, I might be remembering this wrong. Yeah. They, 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 uh, but there's a river of chocolate and Willy Wonka mm-hmm. is there. No, there's no Willy Wonka. There's no chocolate. There's, there's no actual magic, but it does feel kind of magical. There's a nice garden that no one goes to. That's mm. the plot. Yeah, more or less. <laughs> it's very charming, actually. <laughs> I, I like the book. I, I, I jest because I was just being silly, but I actually um, I grew up really liking the book, and there was an adaptation from the early 90s. That's yeah, there was one, uh, Agnieszka Holland did yeah. a film version in the, in the early 90s, which is good. Didn't they change uh, the ending, kind of, if memory serves in that one? Um, A little bit. They changed the ending in this new one, too. In okay. fact, they actually, even though the book was written in 1911, they transposed this one to be a World War II movie. Interesting. It takes place in uh, 1946, uh, where the young uh, young heroine uh, is yeah sent off to her cantankerous uncle's estate after mm-hmm. she is orphaned. Uh, the main character is uh, named Mary, and she's played by an actress named Dixie Egger, Eggerix, I-C-K-X. And uh, she is... Is it Dixie Egger Eggerix or just Dixie Eggerix? Just Dixie Eggerix. Okay, the way you said it made me wonder if her name was just, oh. like, really cool. Dixie Egger Eggerix. No, Dixie Eggerix is her name. And uh, keep an eye on her because she's going to be a star. Okay. She has so much You called wit. Florence Pugh. I, I was able to call Florence Pugh. And yeah. uh, no, nobody listened at the time. No one ever does. No, but, it's uh, like, yeah, Lady Macbeth, who's she? Like, like nah, no, she's, watch Lady Macbeth. She's going to have an Oscar nomination Flor- in a year. Yeah. yeah. Pay, pay attention to Florence Pugh. She's a thing. I think Dixie Eggerix is also going to be a thing. Okay. Uh, just she has so much uh, life and vivacity and and a, a kind of this rebellious spirit that just it informs every scene in this movie. Got it. Uh, the cantankerous uncle is played by Colin Firth. 
Okay. And the cantankerous maid is played by Julie Walters, so we have some Ooh, familiar faces. That's a really nice little cast there. Yeah, and uh, and yeah, she it's the same sort of setup. But the specter of World War Two is now hanging over it, and I think that actually improves it in a, a big way. Like how is how does that give it a different vibe than World War One? Well, uh the the horrors of World War Two of like post war England are about to come crashing down on this place. Right. So it makes the idyll of the garden that much more idyllic. Okay. Uh, and yeah, the, and there's a, a tertiary boy who also is <laughs> wandering in and out. Uh, <laughs> that's my new, that's my new grunge band. Tertiary, tertiary boy. boy. Yeah. Uh, his name is Dick and he's played by an actor named Emir Wilson. And the three kids are just great. Huh. They have great chemistry together. And it, this is one of the only films that I've seen during the pandemic that I kind of wished I could have seen on a big screen. Yeah, because a lot of those. The, the, yeah. the color, like even something like Artemis Fowl, which was clearly designed to have all of these big digital details. Like, first of all, Artemis Fowl is kind of a shitty movie. So yeah, I it's really not that care. good. Yeah. Like it's, <laughs> but, it's not really a tragedy. No, but this one has like a lot of big sort of cinematic details. It was. Oh, sorry, that was my computer, not yours, audience. Just beautifully, beautifully photographed by a. a photographer named Lol Crowley and uh, he's a British uh, photographer I, I'm yeah. just looking over his filmography he does, hasn't done anything uh, notable in America that you might have heard of but uh, yeah just the, the way it looks the first of all the big palatial estate isn't just something that's kind of cold and forbidding like it's it's not so much uh, Crimson Peak mm-hmm. as it is uh, that orphanage from a, the orphanage? A, little, a Little Princess oh okay which, you know, was a miserable place, but it actually had, like, visual variety it was also and beautiful. color and texture. It yeah. was also beautiful. Like, so, it's, and it's and this place to, yeah. is, is, like, very forbidding, and there's a lot of empty hallways, but there's really beautiful wallpaper, and it's actually really well uh, decorated, and there's a lot of art on the walls. So it feels like this very lived-in place, this big palatial estate. And the garden is really fantastical, and it's right on the line of feeling like it's fake. Because I've seen that a lot in, in where uh, mm-hmm. you know, digital photography tries to bring in all of these new digital tricks, and they oversaturate, and they create too many digital images, and after a while it's like, well, this isn't a magical garden, this is just somebody's demo reel after a while. Yeah. Uh, this one, they do it perfectly. It's right mm-hmm. on the line of feeling like it's almost a little bit too magical. And of course they add a few effects, like pulsating flowers, and then there's like magical keys people find. Uh, it is a very pleasant story because it is just about the healing power of being a kid in a garden mm-hmm. and how pleasant that can be. Yeah. Uh, and it's, it's about respite, really. Yeah. You know, yeah, like, because find, finding a break from your darkened rut. Yeah. Hmm. No, and it's true. And it's, um, listen, I, I'm, I'm a fan of the book. Hmm. I actually, I actually wanted to review this one, but unfortunately I couldn't like, uh, <laughs> couldn't get a screener and I couldn't afford it. <laughs> So oh, okay. I didn't get a chance, and this this bugs me, especially since you said it was really nice. So, mm-hmm. dang it! Yeah, so I'll definitely catch up on see, this one. I, at some I point really in the dug this one. That's I, great. I was really, really pleased. I was directed by a guy named Mark Munden, mm. who is uh, uh, he did National Treasure. Okay, but not the Nicolas Cage National Treasure, a different National Treasure. Oh, he's a British director okay, who's, 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 whose film work I'm not familiar okay, with. Okay, there you go. Yeah. All right, well, let's move on. Uh, I saw a dance movie. Tell me about the dance movie. Yeah, there's a new dance movie on Netflix called Work It. There's an it, and it's got to be worked. Now, let me explain how this process goes. No, th- this is uh, the story about how the clown Pennywise needs to get a job. Yeah, and he needs to get a job uh, choreographing dance numbers Work for a high it. school. Uh, 
Sorry, the, High the, school. the jokes are very, very bad this week. They're 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 lower echelon critically acclaimed <laughs> jokes this week, and we apologize for that. Um, Work it is a new dance movie, uh, and uh, as everyone probably knows by now, Whitney and I love dance movies. It, it's a uh, uh, not even a guilty pleasure, a proud pleasure. No, I, again, I don't typically believe in guilty pleasures. Uh, I think if you take pleasure in something, it's okay to say so. It's mm-hmm. also okay to say that those things are worthy of criticism. Uh, dance movies, I think, are an underappreciated genre. They are incredibly forthright and uncomplicated uh. most of the time, and that's where they belong. Well, all you need to do to get a hit dance movie is to get a strong, simple conflict that can be solved through dancing... And get a cast of likable, doesn't even have to be great or complicated, likable characters who can genuinely dance and then get some good choreography and hopefully a good soundtrack. If you can do that, it doesn't matter if you're recycling a plot that's been used a hundred times before, you've got a good dance movie and I'll be at the very least pretty forgiving. Work It is not a good dance movie. Oh, no. And I'm very, very bummed out to say that because I was looking forward to it. We haven't had a good dance movie in a bit. Uh, even we had a new Step Up movie this year, and that was not great. So uh, you know, dang it. Uh, Work it. Uh, stars. Oh, what is her name here? Um, Brianna Evigan. No, the uh, other, the other one. Sabrina Carpenter. Oh, Sabrina. Okay. Sabrina Carpenter. And here's the plot. Sabrina Carpenter is a high schooler, and she really wants to get into Duke University. Okay. However, she might not be able to get into Duke University. Because although she has an impeccable grade point average and a lot of extracurricular activities, they're not quite impressive enough. So she needs mm-hmm. to so she needs to join her school's top flight dance team in order to really impress mm-hmm. the people at Duke. So here are the stakes: an incredibly smart, talented person with an impeccable college resume might have to go to her second choice college. That that's terrible. Those that's that's an awful setup for a movie. Well, also, Duke is a real school. It is a real school. It, it, I mean, it's it's a, a good school from what I understand. No, it's not a bad there, school. But, yeah. Like I've never heard anyone say Duke sucks. Like I don't know. Maybe it does, but like I know it's named after a, a cigarette magnet who made his. I didn't know that. Fort- yeah, Buck Duke huh. was a, a fellow who made made his fortunes like. Yeah. Selling tobacco and mm. doing a lot of shady business things. And why does she want to go to Duke? Why is it so important for her to go to Duke? Because her, her dad went, went to Duke. Duke. Her, da- <laughs> her, her dad, dad went to Duke. Duke. Her dad is no longer with us. Okay. And so she wants to go to Duke because dad spoke really highly of Duke. I don't care. Maybe if you had shown, like, on his deathbed, he was like, if you want to prove you love me, you have to go to Duke. Don't forget to go to Duke. If you don't go to Duke, my soul goes to hell. Like something really bullshitty like that. I would have been like, fine. I, it's a big deal that she's going to Duke. But she is going to turn over everyone's life in order to go to Duke. She goes to her best friend, who is actually a really talented dancer. She hasn't danced a day in her life. But she goes to her best friend, who's a really talented dancer. She's one of the featured dancers at the school Dance Squad, which is considered one of the best in the country. And convinces her to quit on the spot so that they can assemble a ragtag team of dancers from different walks of life to compete with their own school's dance squad. She also stalks a guy who graduated from high school a while ago and was a great dance choreographer when he had a good dance squad. And uh, convinces him... 
to train her dance squad while also getting into a romantic relationship with him. And I'm like, she's only now applying to colleges. She's a high school junior. <laughs> I don't there's there's a he does not look like 17 or even 18. This is on the creepy scale and we are going for it and they will have a romantic relationship and it's weird. The other thing that pisses me off about this movie <laughs> is uh well actually you no know, it's kind of fundamentally the same thing where the protagonist is the least interesting person in the film. And that's, that's death that's, always. Yeah, that's yeah. always death. There's not a... There, and, there, and it's common. It's so common. Yeah. It's so common. And the movie doesn't seem to understand this at all. When we start assembling, like, the, the ragtag team of dancers that she puts together for mm. this, they're actually... I mean, they're one. Of, it's like Pitch Perfect, where most of the characters are, like, one character trait only. And yeah. they just use it for gags, but so that's it's fine because those are broad comedies. Yeah, though. Um, yeah, yeah. That, it is fine. It's pitch perfect. Pitch perfect gets away with it. Um, here, all of these people who have only one character trait are more interesting than our protagonist. Like that's <laughs> oh, that's no. all there is to it. Like, oh, it's like here's this goth person who has absolutely no interest in mm. joining any uh, particular materials, and she's like reading works of famous philosophers, and the only way to get her to join is to say, you know, uh, Nietzsche played football, and they say it actually influenced a lot of his later writings. So she's like, all right, I could join a team. Like that's someone who's interesting. Mm. I want to know she, them. She has interests. Yeah, she has interests and thoughts in her head that go beyond. I really want to get into my first choice college, even though I could almost certainly get into my second. We. Uh, so you've got all of these like really interesting dancers. All of them. Are, <laughs> hey Otto, you, you went you went to Brown, didn't you? Yep, almost got tenure too. <laughs> <laughs> you used to be a professor at Brown, weren't you? Um. But when they have, like, their big uh, uh, tryouts for the big work it dance competition that they mm. have to get into in order to get her into Brown. Great. You mean no Duke. one else is Duke. getting anything. Duke, not Brown. Whatever. Duke. <laughs> it is a Duke. <laughs> whatever. Brown's her second choice and she'd be fine there. Mm. Like, I, I don't know if that's true, but they never talk about her second choice. Have a second choice, always, when you go into college. Trust uh me. Have a, also have a third, fourth, fifth, yeah. sixth, and seventh a choice. Apply to have a variety a list. of places. <laughs> Do not put all your eggs in one basket. Is it expensive? Yeah, but you know what? You kind of gotta. It's 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 an investment in your future. It's worth mm -hmm. it. Um, so all of these people are working their ass off so that she can get into Duke. I'm not sure what all of these other people are getting out of this. Mm. Um, and uh, when they go to their big dance competition, and this is just telling you everything you need to know about the movie right here. You've got all of these interesting characters that we've assembled. And when they do their dance number, and it's not great, but the whole point is they'll get better later. Mm. The camera will not leave Sabrina Carpenter. We're hardly ever like it's like half the time it's just a close up on her not being oh, the best no, dancer. No, 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 pull back, pull, pull back, see, show us the dancers. Pull back, a show us the dancers, and B acknowledge that this is not exclusively her film because she is not interesting here she's a fine actor i'm not singling her out because she's bad i'm mm. singling her out because the movie has written her character very badly mm. she ends up coming across as uh selfish monomaniacal or at the very least kind of controlling eh, naive anyway like she mm. just someone needs to sit her down and just say there are other good schools and your dad would be fine with that mm. for the love of god the movie is not great. <laughs> the movie, I, I would have loved... Nothing would have made me happier to, than to report 
that the movie is great. Uh, it's kind of weird that they make like the the only gay character in the film this cartoonish over the top villain who's trying to exclude people and get them canceled and shit, and that's not great. But uh, even beyond that, it's just it's it again. There's a low bar for dance movies. Simple story, high stakes, good dancing. Likeable characters. Good dancing at the top of that list. Good dancing should be number one. Good dancing, I've seen worse. There's some good stuff in here. Mostly I've just seen worse. Likeable characters, they they ruin it because the protagonist is way off. And the stakes could not be lower. (laughs) Like, the stakes are like the lowest stakes I've ever seen in a dance movie. Like, this is not a great dance Mm. movie. Nothing would make me happier than to say that it was. It's time to make protest art. I, I, this is, I'm trying to think if any of the Bring It On sequels were worse than this. Like, maybe two. I mean, th- those Bring It On sequels were, like, after the second were all pretty bad. Oh, I don't know, like, I thought the last one was kind of fun, oh, when the, they had, the, like, the, the whole, like, secret society of dancers were that, trying that, to undermine Okay, the, that one was, that was Worldwide Cheer Smack, yeah, right? that was yeah, kind of fun. That one was okay. Yeah, that was kind of fun. We've watched all the Bring It On movies. Oh, Yeah. <laughs> Brought all the Bring It On movies, brought all the Step Up movies, um, and this is this work is definitely a lower echelon dance movie. Yeah. Mm. Uh, if is it watchable? Yeah, sure, but you can do a lot better. Okay. All right, let's move on. Uh, tell me about choose one. I'll I'll do it. Tell me about out stealing horses. <laughs> There's no comma. It's just out stealing horses. Okay. Outstealing Horses is a Norwegian film, and boy, howdy, is it a depressing Norwegian film. Because okay. uh, how many Norwegian comedies do you know about? I can think of one called The Green Butchers, and that's about cannibalism. So, uh, <laughs> Okay, I'm looking up Norwegian comedies, see if there's any I've seen. Maybe there's some Norwegian comedies I'm not thinking about. But uh, yeah, this one stars uh, Stellan Skarsgård, who lives in a very small remote town in Sweden, mm. uh, and he has... Moved to this very moved into this little tiny remote cabin. He's very alone. He doesn't like talking to other people. He's lost contact with everybody in his life. And the movie is sort of about how about this sort of series of remembrances he begins having about uh, when he was fifteen and what led him to be the grumpy Gus that he is today. Mm. And uh, we get to see this long, complicated story that happened in the past when he was fifteen. He would go out to a remote cabin in the woods with his father, leaving his mother and his sister behind. And there was a horrible tragedy that befell him on one of these, or didn't befall him, but just occurred in the small town on one of his trips. As it turns out, the neighbor that he would go uh, like horse stealing with. Uh, was charged to look after his own twin brothers, mm. and one of them died on his watch. Oh, shit. In fact, one of the brothers accidentally killed the other. Uh, right. and this, this is a bad time for me to point out that okay. I found a Norwegian comedy with an amazing title. Okay. It's a 2013 Norwegian comedy called Kiss Me, You Fucking Moron. <laughs> <laughs> Which is an amazing title, and I want to check out that movie now based on the title alone. So good on you, whoever named that film. Directed by Trond Trondheim. Uh, <laughs> Sorry about that. I just had to put that in somewhere, and Whitney didn't leave me much of an opening. Well, no, and I was just describing child murder. So, yeah, yeah good job there. Good timing. Yeah. Uh, Undermine but, but the the child murder, of course, sends ripples through the small town, but not in ways you would quite expect. It just sort of shakes everybody into 
essentially their worst behavior. Mm. Uh, everybody is now really sort of uh, petty and vengeful and spiteful and sad. Uh, the 15-year-old Stellan Skarsgård character begins flirting with and having the hots for the dead child's mother. Mm. And also learns that his father might also be having, also has the hots for this, this woman. Okay. And, uh, yeah, this, the emotional terrorism that is going on in this movie is completely understandable in making a miserable Stellan Skarsgård into a miserable Stellan Skarsgård. It's really immediate and raw and in a literary sense, this feels like an old novel, some old Russian novel that you hated reading in college. <laughs> Something where just it, it's nothing but uh, cold coldness and not even cruelty, just the the slipperiness of decency and the slowly growing emotional blockages that turn us into incomplete human beings later in life. Uh, there's a lot of sim- symbolism involving uh, because the the teenage protagonist's father is a lumberjack. There's a lot of uh, log symbolism. So the idea of getting logs going smoothly downstream or them mm. clogging up the stream and creating a dam. And that's, that's a very important symbol in this movie. Right. Uh, it's a pretty tough watch, but it's incredibly engaging. Uh, it might be a little difficult to follow because it jumps around in time a lot because there's flashbacks within the flashbacks and oh, there's flash yeah. forwards within the flashbacks. It's always complicated. But, uh, yeah. Um, and then, of course, it cuts back to the present occasionally, and we get to see Stellan Skarsgård meeting up with maybe some of these characters when they're old men, and uh, sort of what their relationship looks like now and how it's not what you might expect. Yeah. Uh, it takes a lot of emotional maturity to write a screenplay like this. There's not, uh, there's no easy way outs for a screenplay like this one. Uh, and out sealing horses, I think nail something I don't see nailed in movies too much, and that is that uh, the origin of resentment, and I'm surely there's a great long German word for that feeling, <laughs> uh, how how you, you grow into sort of like a bitter resentment person, uh, gritter resentful person, and there's always a, like a flashpoint where that began. Yeah. And uh, yeah, there's no single word for that moment when you start to become a horrible person. Mm. Uh, and yeah, I think that's actually a, a, a really interesting story. Uh, it is incredibly downbeat, of course. Yeah. It's really misty and dour and kind of, it's not muddy and miserable. It's just sort of, the depression is more like a haze rather than a hammer. Right. But uh, it, it's still, I think, really kind of a fascinating flag. Norwegian Ninja. No, that wasn't the title of, of this film. It was called no, Out no. Stealing that Horses. Is, that is a Norwegian comedy that I think we both saw. We saw Norwegian Ninja? Yeah, like 2010. I mean, that, that so would... it was a spoof film about a secret uh, c- c- uh, cabal of Norwegian ninjas who were protecting Norway in, during the Cold War. That sounds vaguely familiar. I feel like we watched this together like 10 years yeah. ago. In any case, it's mildly. Oh, you know what? I have seen Norwegian. It's, it's, Ninja. it's got kind of. Uh, it's it's it, not a broad comedy though. It's like it, I think it's based on a true story. It, it's based off of like a. It, it's like Confessions of a Dangerous Mind. Like it's not really what happened, but oh, that's okay, the gag, yeah. and it's got almost like a Wes Anderson kind of quality to its okay. um, to its action, which is uh, very charming. Yes, you know what? I have seen Norwegian. Okay, Ninja. so there's a Norwegian okay, so comedy. We both seen. Comedy. There you go, and it was amusing. Mm. Anyway, moving on. <laughs> 
That's Good segue. Yeah. Okay, let's move on. Let's move on to another movie that both of us have seen. Uh, this is a movie that opened last week in drive-ins, but it is now available on video on demand everywhere, and I'm glad we waited to see it because I wanted to see this too, and it is really good. <laughs> this is Amy Simetz's new horror film, She Dies Tomorrow, and it is about an infectious idea that leads to... Uh, existentialist dread and mm. horrific uh, uh, violence. Oh, I didn't see it, but isn't that the same premise as the Bye Bye Man? The idea mm. is you're not you're not supposed to say it or think about it, and but quite, if you do, it's not quite the same. Oh, the yeah. Bye Bye Man, which I thought was a little underrated, um, people just scoffed because it has a stupid name, and it mm. does. However, the point of the name is that it sticks in your head. You don't forget it. So mm. the fact that it's kind of stupid kind of fits because you remember the Bye Bye Man. It's a stupid name. Uh, but the idea is uh, it's basically a boogeyman uh, who only exists if you think about him. Hmm. And if you try not to think about him, you're still thinking about him. And every time you tell someone else about it or even say the name, he like sort of spreads like a virus. And so um, there's something to that. The idea of literalizing an intrusive thought hmm. and turning that into sort of a modern version of Freddy Krueger. It's not bad. Like, I've seen way worse horror movies. Like, the audience I saw it with really, really dug it. Like, I, I don't understand why it has quite so bad a reputation as it's got. Um, but it's not She Dies yeah. Tomorrow. She Dies Tomorrow is way more... Um, well, it's way more, way more psychologically real and knowing. Uh, it, yeah. It, it essentially uh, posits, what if anxiety and panic attacks were contagious? Uh, Basically. Uh, yeah. the, the protagonist of the film uh, is... Let me look up the, uh, the actress's name. Played by uh, Caitlin Shile, uh, she plays a character named Amy, mm-hmm. who uh, gets it in her mind one day that she's going to die tomorrow, and how that, not in sort of a, a broad comedy sort of way. Well, I'm just going to live it up today. Uh, mm-hmm. This idea uh, is a millstone around her neck. It drags her down. She understands that all of existence is sort of pointless, and she is uh, dragged into a horrendous pit of despair. Yeah, uh, she still tries to go through the motions of socializing with other people, but this idea that she's going to die tomorrow has col- colors everything she says. She's completely depressed mm-hmm. and begins to lash out in the way that you do when you are depressed. You begin to say kind of hateful things because the people around you don't matter because you don't matter yeah. when you're depressed. That's how you uh, feel. That's how you feel. Yeah, and when that's uh, not true. when she's at a, when she's at a dinner party, uh, no, you're, you're getting or, a little confused because that's her friend. Oh, oh, that's right. She, so the first, idea first, first she spreads it to a friend. Yeah. So here's the idea: we open up with uh, uh, Caitlin Shile. Mm. Uh, she is alone in her house, and she is like researching weird things on the internet and getting weirdly obsessed with little details. And uh, she's just depressed and in an extreme state. And when her friend, played by the great Jane Adams, one of my favorite character actors, mm. I don't see her enough. Um, she shows up to just sort of check in on, on Caitlin Shile because, uh, she's an alcoholic and she has obviously fallen off the wagon. She's been drinking the whole movie. Um, she tells Jane Adams, I am going to die tomorrow. Like, how do you, how could you possibly know that? It's just a feeling like mm-hmm. the way you know that, I like, just know what's going to happen. Yeah. It's like, it's like when you know that if you drop a plate, it'll break. I just know it's going to happen. I can feel it in my bones. And Jane Adams is just like, well, that's not true. And I have to go and do my own thing. And I'm just going to leave you here because I, I can only be so responsible for you. But please take care and don't worry. You won't die tomorrow. And then Jane Adams goes home and starts going about her business. And all of a sudden she's like, 
I'm going to die tomorrow. Mm-hmm. And just the idea has caught on. And then she goes to her, the birthday party of her brother's wife. And that's all she can talk about. It's how she thinks she's going to die tomorrow. And that idea catches on to everyone at that party. And then they go their own separate ways. Mm-hmm. And it spreads and spreads and spreads. And it's not it's, so much that like, oh, we're go- like we're going to die tomorrow because aliens are going to land. Mm-hmm. Or, oh, we're going to die tomorrow so we might as well go through the purge. It's just about how that sense of impending doom taints the way you behave mm-hmm. and creates these bizarre patterns where some people become just more honest than they've ever been before. Some people give in to their darker impulses. Um, but it just completely shakes down the collective fabric of mm. sort of human connection in a uh, way that is absolutely entrancing and very, very creepy. Yeah. Uh, I was reminded of Lars von Trier's Melancholia, mm. which is a movie about uh, depression so powerful that it's apocalyptic. I still haven't seen that uh, movie. Oh, you have? Oh, I, no, I, I've heard it's good, but I've never I, got I think you'd dig it, but, you know, it's Lars von Trier, so it's very theatrical mm-hmm. and it's very demonstrative and he likes to sort of prod you a little bit. But I think it does understand something very real about uh, the depressive mindset. Uh, this is the same sort of thing. It feels like uh, it feels like it's trying to turn depression and anxiety and panic into something apocalyptic. Mm. This is the way the world ends, with everyone convinced that it's going to end. Yeah, I think if you are a, a sufferer of anxiety or of depression or mm. have panic attacks. You must see this movie. I, it's, it, it can it's, also be kind of triggering. I want to be able to note that it's a horror movie. It's a horror movie, but yeah. it's rarely honest yeah. about sadness and panic. And we don't mean like the movie itself is very rarely honest. I mean, like it's rare to find a movie this honest, Th- this honest about yeah. this topic. Yeah, it feels very uh, uh, sort of natural, mm-hmm. and it's. Uh, a portrayal of this, even though it seems to have a somewhat supernatural element to yeah, it, that but, is and in fact, never when, really explained. It's not really about that. No, the, the the origin of it, or we understand how it functions a little bit, and yeah. there's the sort of supernaturalish looking camera trick, like when someone gets infected with that thought. There's this weird sort of color stretch yeah. that you, you can see it happening. So there's a visual indicator, uh, and so yeah, it feels like there's something really kind of supernatural going on. But at the same time, it's also just psychological. Mm. And there's not there's not going to be a scene where the demon shows up and hacks you to pieces. Yeah. But there is actual also death. And whether or not that's a supernatural death or just essentially suicidal thoughts getting the better of the characters mm-hmm. is up open for interpretation. I look at this film and mm. I don't think it's necessarily called out too directly, but it's hard for me not to see this film as kind of a metaphor for the way that social media can affect our mental mental health. And I say this as someone who has had to leave social media for a while, specifically for mental health reasons. I was experiencing extreme depression and anxiety um, earlier this year, this summer in particular, and I just had to leave Facebook Mm -hmm. and Twitter for a few weeks. And I'm I'm on now, but way less than I used to be. Um, and I think one of the reasons is why is that we kept seeing social media amplifying a lot of negativity. That's not to say that the negativity wasn't well justified and there isn't a lot of, like a horrible things in the world that we need to be discussing. But when all of you're seeing is, is, is people's like 
fears and anxieties and cynicism about the state of things and the future of this country or the future of the climate or the future of the pandemic. Well, there's a, and there's a lot of uh, like emotional policing going on mm-hmm. and a lot of ways that you're supposed to feel about yourself or supposed to feel about certain things and yeah. how, how depressed or outraged you're supposed to be at any given moment that can put a lot of strain on your emotional state. Yeah, and I feel like, you know, it's very easy to have... Um, that kind of, you know, sort of doom hanging over you mm. if you are that connected into, um, you know, whatever the, the mycelial network mm. of, uh, of contemporary uh, depression and anxiety. And I, that might just be me applying things that I have been thinking about lately to the film, but the fact that the film so tidily can encompass like a real world issue like that I think speaks to the very potent power of She Dies Tomorrow which is you can look at it very much on the surface Mm. or you can see within this very simple very effective very frightening concept a lot of different significant philosophical emotional psychological Mm. ideas that can relate to you and I think that is one of the earmarks of a truly great horror movie is that you can take away multiple things Mm. from it because it is connecting to you on a deep level. Yeah. So this is, mm, this is the best horror movie of the year so far. It's right up there. I still like the invisible man. Invisible man's rock solid, but this is right up there. This is an excellent horror movie. The the invisible man, I think hit me in a really personal sort of way. So it also uh, has a slightly more, you know, sort of showiness to it, even though it's actually pretty restrained. By a lot of uh, you know studio system horror movie standards, but there, there's like may- there is mayhem. There's mayhem. The movie, yeah. There's there's visual effects. You know there's there's a certain crowd pleasing quality to it that uh, isn't worth ignoring because I think it's part of the appeal of the Invisible Man. This isn't that kind of movie. This is a grim, hmm. creepy, insidious kind of horror movie. But I think it's a highly effective one, and I do hope everyone checks it out because this is a really potent, effective. Mm-hmm. Uh, work of horrifying mm-hmm. art, and it's also it's also very efficient. It's mm-hmm. like what an hour and a half. Like it's right. It just gets in, gets out, does the business, um, and yeah, it's it gets under your skin, man. This is a really really excellent film. I'm glad and, I watched this. And uh, this isn't Amy Simet's first film as a director, but I think it is her first film as writer producer director. Mm. That I don't know. She's done a lot of oh, short films. Yeah. She's done a lot of short films. Uh, but she did she, a film in 2008 lot, called uh, We Saw Such Things. Oh, wait. She did. She did Sun Don't Shine. Uh, she's done a few feature films before. Yeah. But uh, she's incredibly assured here. And, yeah. This uh, is definitely she, a, uh, uh, something that should like right. make people stand up and notice her if they haven't already. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. All right. And the, our last new release of the week uh, is... Um, God, I can't come up with a good rhyme for this title. <laughs> there, uh, because nothing rhymes with burnt orange heresy. Oh, that sounds like a challenge. Write us in, letters at criticallyacclaimed.net. <laughs> and come and up with, come a, up with a, a rhyme burnt, for burnt, the burnt orange heresy. Okay. I'm sure you can do it. I believe in you, audience. The burnt orange heresy is a thriller in quotation marks. The quotation marks because it's not exactly thrilling. Mm. About an art critic and what a dick he is. So... <laughs> Now, we're critics. We've seen the way critics are treated in movies before, mm-hmm. uh, notably Lady in the Water and notably Chef, 
where uh, and also Ratatouille, where the, well, vil- the 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 <laughs> critics are presented as villains. Ratatouille, the the critic comes around. Well, and I think Chef they do as well. I, I, mean, I think, I think I in Chef they reveal that the critic was never actually that bad. Uh-huh. Um, I actually like the way the critic is portrayed in Chef, but the one I think of as like the evil evil mm-hmm. film critic uh, is actually Birdman. Oh, there well, she you talks go. about, oh, I'm going to destroy gonna your plane just because you're from Hollywood. Yeah, you're from Hollywood. So, you're the worst person in the world, and everyone from everyone in Hollywood who's voting for the Oscars is just like, yes, get her. <laughs> Show her what's what. <laughs> I'm going to give you so many so, Oscars, Birdman. And it, it opens with this big, long speech where he's talking about this lost painting, and look at all these wonderful things, and the artist like, I was going through this tough time, and you can see that's where these paintings come in, but these brush strokes are really sort of amateur, so you can see that he's at the end of his power and what do you think of this painting, this class I'm teaching? And I say, oh, it's all very, they're all stroking their chins. It's mm. very, very good. Well, it turns out I'm lying. I painted that yesterday. <laughs> so I need to think about what kind of critics you're listening to. It's like, oh, so you're proving the importance of critics by being a dick. Good yeah. job. Mm-hmm. Uh, he is hired by Mick Jagger. Hey, always fun to see oh, Mick Jagger yeah. acting. He's a good actor, well, actually. Well, f- first of all, first he has an affair with Elizabeth Debicki. They're, like, she's in the back Understood. of the class, and she comes up and is like, hey, I'm Elizabeth Debicki. And he says, well, I am Clay's bang, and I'm going to have sex with you. And they have sex, and they start this affair. So they go get in together on this thing that Mick Jagger hires him for. They need him to infiltrate the studio of an incredibly reclusive painter played by Donald Sutherland. Hey! Uh, who has not produced work in a long time, and uh, he essentially wants uh, this critic to steal paintings from this reclusive artist so he can sell them and become rich. Ah. And he does end up ingratiating himself into the artist's studio about three quarters of the way through the movie. Okie dokie. This thing moves really, really slow. And it's really smug and kind of satisfied with the fact that it moves slow. Yeah. Uh, Now, don't get me wrong. I love me a slow movie. Yes, we all know you love slow movies, Whitney. (laughs) I was the one who reviewed that uh, three-hour torture fest just a couple weeks ago. Yeah. Black and white torture movie? I'm there. It's three hours in Polish? I love it. (laughs) Now you're talking my language. Polish. Uh, okay. Yeah. And they make good I, movies. I don't, I don't yeah. Plenty of plenty go Polish it's a movies. Country, um, I don't know. It's a weird thing to single anyway, out. Anyway, the, the burnt orange heresy, uh, there are some big twists and turns as to like the true nature of what the, the art, the reclusive artist was doing in, in seclusion, mm-hmm. the kind of work he was producing in seclusion. And ultimately what the main character has to do to, steal a painting or forge a painting or get a painting to uh, Mick Jagger. It's explained what the title, the title is explained in the movie. Okay. Uh, there's the, it's one of the fake paintings that the Donald Sutherland character uh, has, has painted the uh, fictional painting that Donald Sutherland has painted. And he co- wanted to call it the burnt orange heresy specifically because the title is meaningless. And what he wanted to do was make Critics go crazy interpreting what that could possibly mean. So this entire movie exists as a prank on critics. You realize critics are going to watch this, right? Yeah. I, okay. I, now, if I'm not a critic, mm-hmm. if I'm watching this, by the way, this, everyone's a critic, and, and everyone's a critic. Uh, but if I'm not a professional critic, mm-hmm. and I'm just watching this film as 
a non-professional film enthusiast or just somebody who wants to go see a film. Mm -hmm. And my relationship to criticism is perhaps negative because as critics, we're incredibly popular, aren't we? (laughs) People love, that's why we got into this field is to be just warmly loved by everyone and artists in particular. And to make all this money. And to, yeah, to just roll in the lucre. This is why we became critics. Sure. If my relationship to critics actually is somewhat negative, or if I'm an artist who has been burned by a critic in the past, that might be kind of a thrilling message, right? Mm. This sort of anti-critic polemic. Some things uh, are a little bit more easily appreciated uh, without too much analysis. Mm -hmm. Analysis can get in the way of appreciating something. And that's that's like a concept that's in this movie. There's this interesting perspective Mm. that critics are placing themselves on a pedestal. And we've all known a few who do, don't mm. get me wrong, but that's really not the norm <laughs> cough, in my experience. Cough, cough, Armand White, cough, cough. But, uh, uh, but, but the idea is that because there's this sort of rarefied perception mm. of critics, which most of the critics I know wouldn't even foster if they had the choice, no. uh, that, you're, that, you're, <laughs> that, that attacking a critic is punching upwards, mm. I assure you we're way down there. No. <laughs> we're, no. No, no, there's no respect. <laughs> no respect, no money, no career, no future, no retirement, no health insurance. We're, we're, we're slightly more popular than kidnappers. We, we, you know, we're, <laughs> we do this because there's really nothing else like we're because, passionate no, we, about. We, have, we do it because we have to. This we is have, what we, we do. We have passions and we love analyzing yeah. and we love the arts and we like to share the arts. And there is a yeah. lot of, of important things that we're doing yeah. here. But yeah, the, there's we're also as a group not widely widely celebrated yeah, by by the general public. I, I get it. Uh, I'm however, not it too hard. so if I'm going into the, the burnt orange heresy and I see that concept, I'm like, yeah, stick it to those critics. The problem is the burnt orange heresy is also a thudding bore. Yeah, uh, it's pretty dynamically photographed. Like it looks like a little bit of a thriller, but it moves so slowly, and it's so ponderous and so just. Dully contemplative, that it's not going to be an exciting thing to watch. It's not mm. about an art heist. It's not about planning some big scheme where you need to like sneak through doors and beat laser eyes on things. That that's not in this movie. It stands to reason that if you're going to make a movie that defies critical expectation in order to say the critics are mm. in some way bad, then the movie you produce in order to defy critics should be the kind of thing people would enjoy. Because yeah, so, otherwise, if they say, oh, critics will hate this, well, if everyone else does... like so, Something that's, quote, beyond criticism. Like, put put an evil asshole critic character in a Transformers movie. Some snotty film critic that Optimus Prime accidentally steps on. Why not? I'll play him. Sure. I don't mind. Yeah. Whitney will do it for free. I'll, I'll do take it for, his salary. I'll, <laughs> I won't do it for free, but I'll do it for less than you would charge a, yeah. a professional actor. I'll do it for scale. I'll do it for scale. Just so long, and, and I don't mind. I'll crush me. Have, oh, I would have, love to have be crushed bum, by a Have Transformer. Bumblebee sit on me <laughs> by accident. That and would then, be and then great. Fart. Mm. I remember uh, when uh, when uh, Roland Emmerich's Godzilla came out. There were there were two uh, characters that looked a lot like Gene Siskel and Roger Ebert. In fact, the mayor was named Ebert, yep. and his sibling assistant was named Gene. Yeah. And uh, Roger Ebert, of course, saw that and recognized it immediately. He says, oh, what a great thing to, to honor us by putting us in the movie. But you missed an opportunity not killing me. Yeah. Godzilla <laughs> Go- step I, Godzilla, on me. Have Godzilla step on me and Gene Siskel. This is why you Did, put us in there. Right? I, I, I've heard this story many times about him talking about how he made his way into mm. Godzilla 1998. Did he ever talk about how various film critics made their way into Willow? 
No. <laughs> because here's the thing. If you remember the movie Willow, which is basically Lucasfilm's kind oh, of... Well, the 200 Dragon was named Siskel and Ebert, it, right? Close. Uh, so basically, if you don't remember Willow, it's really good, actually. It's not great, but it's fun. It's, it's a fantasy version of Star Wars. It's the same story. Yeah, it's right? it's Star Wars with Lord of the Rings in it. Warwick Davis stars and he's trying to protect this uh, baby chosen one. And he teams up with a very hunky, young uh, Val, Val Kilmer. Who's the Han Solo player. Yeah, who, they fight an evil sorceress. And um, it's not amazing, but it's fun. Hmm. Um, but uh, a lot of the villains are named after film critics. Uh, there was a two-headed dragon named Ebersisk. <laughs> there you go. Which is actually a pretty good dragon name. It's even even in a vacuum, that's fun. But my favorite one is uh, Queen Bavmorda's general. Mm, is this really, Darth Vader type? Is this yeah. Darth Vader type? He's really tough. He wears a skull mask. He looks really cool. And uh, his name is General Kale. After Pauline Kale. After Pauline Kale. Oh, that's funny. And I love that. And I never found out <laughs> what e- Siskel and Ebert thought of that. And I definitely never found out what Pauline Kale thought of that. So uh, that just amuses the hell out mm-hmm. of me. God, wouldn't it be the, the, great? The monsters and the villains. What kind of monster critics, would you though? want to be named? Would you want named after you? Oh, well, definitely a kaiju. I'd want okay. like a Godzilla-type monster. Or oh, something no, that it's smashes the giant cybolt. The Bolden Sigh. I would like... Oof. <laughs> That's tough, man. Mm. I'm trying to think. Like, what kind of monster would be named like the Bibiani? The oh, well, it would have to be like a Babadook, like like something yeah. shadowy that something lurks, shadowy and creepy. Yeah, yeah an insidious thought, like the shadowy thing that's in the shadows yeah. and has piercing light eyes. Yeah, I'm down. Be bear the Bibiani. I like it. But okay. it, it would have to have like a modern American name. Like they they call it like the the. I don't know what it is. Uh, <laughs> the bland. <okay>. The bland. <laughs> Beware the bland man. Yes, but it comes from old Italian folklore where it's called the Bibiani. <laughs> that, that's your monster. That would make me... <laughs> I'm not sure I feel about that, actually. Uh, but you'd, so, you'd be honored and you know it. I would. I yeah. would, actually. Uh, so the Burnt Orange, Her- Orange Heresy is not very good. It's, it's not very good. Okay. No. I did not That's like it in the least. Well, let's uh, let's go through our, our movies and actually rate them on the critically acclaimed scale. If anyone's new, the critically acclaimed scale goes thusly. We review movies on a scale of C- to C+. The lowest you can get is a C-, which is below average. Everything from we just don't recommend it to the worst thing ever. And the highest score you can get is a C plus. Everything from we just genuinely recommend it to the greatest movie ever. But most movies end up with with a C, which is about average. That's the surest that we'll never get on any posters. Yep, that's exactly what we designed it that way. That is exactly why we designed it. We, we, we are not fishing for quotes here. Nope, that is not the job. Uh, so uh, on that scale, where does the Burnt Orange Heresy lie? That is a C-, minus. So ah. do not watch the Burnt Orange Heresy. Noted. All right, She Dies Tomorrow. I give that a C+. Plus. I think it is... Uh, it will make you worry. Yeah. <laughs> that's, yeah. No, that's no small thing. Uh, I'm definitely giving She Dies Tomorrow a big old C+. Plus. Uh, I think this movie has the power to truly get under your skin and connect with you not on a supernatural level but on a very real level because mm. we all know what it's like to just yeah have a thought we can't get out of our head and have to wrestle with um something that completely changes the way that we mm. perceive the world around us and deal with other people who are wrestling with similar things anyway it's it's incredible i, I really like the movie a lot uh let's see what we got here out stealing horses uh, a C, a, okay. a high C. I think it's a little too dreary to really draw in uh, an audience all the way, but mm-hmm. I think it is 
a very interesting study of a certain kind of uh, emotional complexity that you don't see in a lot of American movies. Uh, Work It sadly gets a C minus. Uh, parts of it are quite amiable, and I like members of the cast. The problem is the focus is entirely wrong. The stakes are incredibly low, and the protagonist is the least interesting person in the film. The bar was pretty low for a dance movie, and they didn't come close. It's a it's a damn shame, is what it is. Uh, let's see, The Secret Garden. Uh, C plus. Nice. I rather enjoyed The Secret Garden. I think it's incredibly pleasant. It's very very sweet. Nice. Uh, I mean, as The Secret Garden should be, and. Uh, Another one's going to come al- come along in a couple of years, but for now we have this one, and this that's, one's quite good. That's nice. Uh, and then lastly, an American pickle. Uh, I'm giving this one straight up C. This uh, is a, this is a this is certainly not a hard watch, but it's a comedy that's just not very funny, and it's a thoughtful allegory for where we are in America that just isn't entertaining enough to really drive that message home effectively. Mm-hmm. But Seth Rogen is fun yeah, in it, and it is it is impressively earnest. And the uh, the the messages are much more interesting than the comedy. The comedy is kind of flat, but yeah, it just sort of steams through those like eighty one minutes or however long it is pretty quickly. It's uh, a good trifle with some interesting thoughts in its head. So I also give it a C. Okay, moving on. It is time at last for the film everyone wants us to talk about. We've had so many requests for this film over the years. That we don't know what to do with them all. I am running out of closet space because we get all those handwritten letters hmm. in the year 20. The jokes 20. do suck this week. They suck they? so they're bad. Still, they're really bad this Look, week. Look, we're trying. Uh, listen, so <laughs> this, clearly not. <laughs> on the every every week on the Critical Game Streaming Club, while the theaters are closed down, we are making an, a, a, an effort to catch up on films that one or both of us haven't seen that are currently available on various streaming services in order to not just focus on the new, but take an opportunity to use all these distribution systems for everything that they're worth. Uh, And uh, no matter who you are, no matter how many movies you've seen, whether you're a professional film critic, merely an enthusiast, casual or absolutely intense in your fervor for filmdom, there's always something you haven't seen. Mm. And this week, because it was Whitney Seibold's birthday this week, That's happy birthday, right Whitney. It was. Uh, Whitney got to pick all of the nominees on the Patreon poll. He mm. decided for the critically acclaimed Criterion channel. I got there. I almost said the wrong thing, but I made it work. <laughs> the critically acclaimed channel, that's in the future. Well, the critically not, acclaimed... Not, now that we can vertically integrate, we'll have our own theaters and our own channels. To be fair, the Criterion channel is quite critically acclaimed. Yes. I think that's fair. Um, but uh, he, he decided to go for a bunch of esoteric films that he's been meaning to get around to on the Criterion channel. That were channel. just of interest to me alone. Yep. This was all made. To his birthday, so. he can pick whatever the fuck he wants, mm-hmm. and... Uh, I, 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 I'm a little surprised at the film you picked, well, honestly, I, I, in the I, poll. I put Andrei Rublev on mm-hmm. the poll, which is an Andrei Tarkovsky movie that I haven't seen and I wanted mm-hmm. to see it. It's often cited as one of the greatest films ever made. Yeah. Uh, I put Smithereens, which is a, a punk rock movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, I put Spirit, The Spirit of the Beehive, which mm-hmm. is uh, sort of like a Frankenstein story. The incredibly influential on Guillermo mm-hmm. del Toro in particular. He has cited it as an enormous influence mm-hmm. on his pretty much whole body of work. But I'm guessing you picked this one just because it has the most interesting title. And, and it's uh, a very interesting title. It's a very interesting title. The title is a Symbiopsychotaxoplasm. Take one. <laughs> and because there is a sequel called Symbiopsychotaxoplasm Take Two and a Half... We reviewed that, too. Um, For those who don't know what the hell that means, the phrase symbiotaxoplasm, Mm. without the psycho in it, refers, and they talk about this in the second movie in particular, uh, refers to 
the sort of connection that we have to people around us when we sort of affect the lives of others and they affect our own lives. Mm. Uh, that is creates a, a connection that someone has dubbed because I guess we need a name for everything. Well, the, symbiotaxoplasm. Uh, the, and it wasn't, and it's not in common usage, a symbiotaxoplasm. No. It's not like common scientific parlance. It was about, uh, there was some fringe psychologists in, I think the fifties who were trying to, make psychology and psychiatry a little bit more of a science mm -hmm. uh, rather than a practice. And uh, so they started coming up with these scientific terms for uh, those psychological things, like the mm -hmm. things that connect us. So they came up with uh, symbiotaxoplasm. And uh, director William Greaves, who directed Symbiopsychotaxoplasm, uh, and he's also a uh, noted documentarian. He won an Emmy for his work in, uh, I think it was PBS News. Uh, he decided to add Psycho in the middle there to talk about the way that our creative endeavors, our artwork, creates a connection hmm. uh, beyond ourselves and becomes part of that, you know, plasm. And uh, and as such, he uh, tried to peel back all of the artifice between a filmmaker and the audience by having, uh, he's making a film. But he also wants to show the making of the film. Mm -hmm. And then, furthermore, he wants to show the making of that film all within one movie. Yeah, so we're seeing a film, mm. the making of that film, and the making of the making of that film. And often we're watching them simultaneously using split-screen techniques. Mm. The way that the film that we're seeing... Let's just go one at a time. The mm. film within the film. The film that they are shooting. Yeah. In the film is actually more of an acting exercise. It's not a complete feature. It's, it's not a scripted film. It's something that well, it is. A, there is a script, well, but it's like one scene. Yeah, and, and he's working out sort of what's happening in the scene with the actors as they go. It, it is a, a pair well, of William Greaves. Is, yeah, it's a pair of lovers. I think they're married, but they're definitely in a long-term committed relationship, and they're having a conversation slash fight in Central Park in New York City. Uh, that in which they are airing all of their dirty laundry to one another and having a long conversation about all the things that have been going unsaid over the course and, of and, and from the and from the sound of it they've had a rotten relationship yeah. and they're both just really horrible to one another uh, and uh, over the course of the film William Greaves doesn't just shoot this scene multiple times in different parts of the park in multiple ways with the same actors he actually films a variety of actors performing the exact same scene trying to figure out trying to unlock the scene but also i think trying to show how artificial it is even while he's showing how true it is and then while we are watching this scene unfold we frequently pull back out to see william greaves directing this scene and honestly it really seeming like he's struggling with it and like giving mm. his actors like a lot of leeway and not really coming to any sort of meaningful well, artistic endeavor he's and clearly they're exploring and i think yeah. that's i think the point of it is that he's exploring the scene he's not trying to get it on film it's more of like a theatrical exercise yeah uh and so we are watching him film this whole endeavor and it's a bit meandering, to be perfectly honest. If you've ever been on a film set when they're not doing like some crazy stunt or whatever, you realize that a lot of, there's a lot of just sitting around. There's a lot of downtime. There's a lot of conversation about the same things over and over again. You're doing the same scene a million times. Like nowadays, when we have more cameras and they're cheaper, people often film with multiple cameras simultaneously. But even then, you frequently have to do multiple setups, and you're doing the exact same scene, the exact same dialogue mm. over and over again throughout an entire day 
day, sometimes over the course of multiple days. And when you're watching it, it's not that exciting. Watch the movie Living in Oblivion at some point. It's a really good film. Really good film about filmmaking. Um, So we're watching this, and frankly, it's kind of tedious. And then eventually we pull back, and we start seeing the crew of the film Mm. who have decided to film themselves... After hours when they're... Without William Greaves' consent or knowledge. Yeah, knowing that he will eventually see this footage. And they're basically talking about, like, open sedition. They're Mm -hmm. talking about how we have lost all confidence in William Greaves as a director. He doesn't seem to understand the material. He doesn't seem to understand acting. The script is terrible, and they're not wrong. And uh, they... The script is terrible. The script is genuinely quite bad. And so they're talking about how... They are losing faith in the project. They're not sure the director has a vision mm. to even stick to. And, and, well, and, and how it's starting to collapse. And how that visionlessness might be part of his artistic process. Mm-hmm. And how much confidence they have in that. Or how much uh, it should be up to a single director to make these sorts of decisions. Mm-hmm. And then they start to wonder if maybe this is the point And mm. that they're all being conned. Yeah. 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 And... and you can tell that they kind of think they're being conned because why else would they be filming it? Yeah, like just in case he's going to use this in the movie because he seems like the kind of director who would. Mm. Um, now, all of that sounds, I'm going to mm. say this right now, all of that sounds um, multi-layered, multifaceted, mm. thoughtful, kind of um, kind of impish, you know, or sort of a cleverness to it mm. that uh, sounds like it would be really engaging. I'm going to be perfectly frank here. Oh. This movie did not do it for me oh, at all. I'm, so I'm watching this movie. I've been on enough film sets that all of this stuff, like we're watching the movie over and over again, and oh, oh, are they reciting dialogue right now, or are they yeah, not? How real is this part? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They um, do that more in part two and a half, but yeah, yeah. especially in part two and a half, they do that a lot. Uh, but even just sticking to the first film, there's something about the way that this movie treats not having a purpose as a grand purpose hmm. that ends up coming across like someone in film school whose project didn't come together and they're trying to <laughs> fix trying it to in post. It, yeah. Or they're just trying to say like, hey, listen, I made something that was really quite bad, but I was able to film everyone being mad at me. And so it's kind of brilliant now, right? And a part of me is just like, it's kind of engaging, but I'm not entirely sure that's how this is supposed to work. I'm also not entirely sure this is as ingenious as you well, think it is. This, this comes across as, get- frankly, kind of like... The the idea for the film feels like the whole film for me, and watching the film doesn't really illuminate the premise that much more than what we just described. Well, it, it, except it's happening in real time. It's it's an essay about itself that's going on while you're watching it. And I think that's a fascinating approach. It is a, it's a media dissection. It's yeah. trying to figure out the the very nature of film and openly admitting time and time again that they don't have an answer yet. And I think just sort of spitballing and spinning your wheels like a film student would, mm-hmm. and having the kinds of conversations about art and media that you would have when you're probably a little hungover from your college party the night before, uh, and how exhilarating that that process is. I'm a little There's... frustrated that William Greaves doesn't seem to be having mm-hmm. these conversations, except within the construct of the well, film. And there's I something f- about yeah. that that I find uniquely dissatisfying, as though I'm going to sit here and I'm just going to sort of direct these scenes not even all that well they're they're not like compelling drama Hmm. and but i'm going to save it all in post 
And he even talks in the second film about how he was concerned that the film wouldn't be engaging because there was no conflict. And he was so glad mm. that his team decided to film themselves are debating yeah. performing some sort of coup d'etat against the director <laughs> because otherwise he wouldn't have a film. And it feels like the sort of thing... Well, it's an experiment, feel, isn't it? it, it of course, yeah. it's an experiment, and I appreciate that experimental cinema isn't necessarily about the experiment working. Yeah. That's not the important thing. The important thing is that you tried, and you can learn from the process, and maybe it works, maybe it doesn't work, but we have all learned something about what art is capable of. Uh, I knew art could be tedious, though. That's my problem. Like, I knew <laughs> art could be but, uh, just this... kind of like meandering around mm. its own self, and I honestly just didn't pick up from this film this great meaning that I know so many people have. So I'm really eager to talk to you about it. What is the great meaning behind this that I'm apparently missing? Well, uh, keep in mind when it was made, it was made in 1968. This yeah. was right uh, at the vanguard of a certain kind of new Hollywood that was just starting at the time. Uh, we already had films like five easy pieces, films that were really five like, easy pieces was later. It was early seventies. That was 67, five easy. No, pieces. But, I don't um, think so. I think you might be thinking of easy rider. Uh, oh, maybe. Yeah. Maybe easy rider. But, uh, Regardless, both of those films are part of the same movement. True. Uh, about, you're right, it was 1970. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, it, it was around the same time. Uh, and it was about this sort of trying to strip away a lot of the glitz and a lot of the artificiality from uh, mainstream cinema. And a True. lot of these movies were moving into the mainstream. And here is this sort of uh, excitable not entirely successful film student project mm. that is addressing it very directly using not just the words and ideas of what the people are saying on camera, but in it's very construct. Mm. And I feel like exploring the various layers of artificiality and in deliberately showing us just how artificial everything was, you're really addressing a brand new wave of aesthetics. How artificial mm. is it, though? And that's the thing that I'm kind of... That I don't really see that many layers of it. Mm. Like, we know they're shooting a movie. We know they're making a movie. We know the movie isn't turning out very good because mm. we can see it. And then they talk about that. That's not layers of artificiality. That's just layers of documentation. Mm. I don't really see that much artificiality in it, Well, really. the scene is not the important thing. And, you know, it's just sort of the relationship and the conversations they're having with the actors. They're talking about the process of how everything is, you know, the weather might change and they might have to move over here. And we see a lot of the just sort of the film's meetings. We just get to see it all laid bare. It's the naked lunch right there on the fork, mm -hmm. uh, to borrow William Burroughs' term. Yeah. Uh, they're, they're trying to show that... Uh, Film is not, it, it's not even about the process. It's just sort of about the process of the process. And I know that sounds mm. incredibly uh, well, pretentious. Well, because you can have, you have, no matter how brilliant your script is, yeah. no matter how brilliant your actors are, how brilliant your directors are, the actual process of making a movie is tedious. Mm. You, make, you shoot the same scene over and over again. You wait for lighting. Oh no, we're getting like wild sound because we're shooting at Central mm. Park and this is completely unusable. So, In both so films, when, yeah, a, when, a cop comes by to check their permits, which if you've ever <laughs> shot a film in a major <laughs> metropolitan area, they will do that constantly. Mm. Sometimes multiple times a day as though maybe you lost your permits and they can kick you out now because they're bored i guess yeah uh so yeah but there's you know they're shooting the film then we have the documentary and that shows how tedious the making of the film is but then that other third layer the making of the documentary of the making of the film mm -hmm. is the one that's sort of trying to get us to question the the purpose of all of this and how futile it all seems at the end of the day 
the the futility of art is lost in this weird overstructuredness of analysis. And I would buy that if it was about the futility of art, but that's mm. not what this seems to be. This seems to be about the futility of bad art. Mm. And that's the thing. If the movie was going great and people were like, wow, this scene is so well written and mm. so it's got such a great direction to it and what an interesting style William Greaves has. But instead, it's just like, we just don't think it's very good. So we're concerned we're just all making a bad movie that's like some weird vanity project for a guy who doesn't know what he's doing. Mm. It's not about, to me, well, and I think it's that not about is, art. It's also part of that questioning. Process. Perhaps. But for me, it's less about art than mm. it is about a lack of faith in a storyteller who isn't demonstrating a lot of quality. There's a very important... So it's about art minus the art. And isn't that fascinating? No. Okay. <laughs> because then it's not about... You're saying it's about art minus the art. What yeah. you're really just saying is it's not about art. Mm. It's about William Graves. Yeah. And there's something about that that I find frustratingly self-serving. It's mm. that, oh, look at how fascinating I am. And listen, William Greaves is a fascinating person. I'm not arguing that. I was about that, to say, within... it, it, it works because William Greaves is a fascinating And guy. I wish this had been about some of the more fascinating stuff that he had done. Maybe some of the more fascinating documentaries he had mm. made. or uh, the, fact, uh, the fact that he's an African-American filmmaker yeah. and I, in the late 60s doing these interesting art experiments. But instead, he's making this story that is just this yeah. completely generic story about a guy whose wife has walked away from him in Central Park mm. and she he says why won't you tell me what this is all about oh you know what it's mm. all about mm. well why won't you tell me I am a woman not a mm. fool well why won't you tell me what it is and then she starts throwing around the F word as mm. a slur not just fuck mm. like as though uh, and threatening his masculinity and this really well and, and, and it turns out that's the subtext of the scene is that he's a closeted gay man. That's not subtext, that's just text well, at that yeah, point. It's... That's my point, is that that's not even subtext. Mm. Subtext would be interesting. Yeah. Text is just thrown in your face with this incredibly blunt, not very interesting dialogue. So I'm not interested in this film that he's making within the film, which sullies my he, ability okay. to be interested in the film that he's making about that film, because well, I don't think he's sincerely making that film. Here's my question. If you did like that film at the center of all of this, yeah. would you have been more interested in the experimental layers on top of it? Yes. Why? Because well, I would the, care the, about the production. I don't care about this production. It doesn't feel it, like this movie. Yeah. It's like I, I'm not interested in how this movie turns out because. But we're not viewing that production. That's not. We are even, viewing that production. That's not the important part of this. It, it's important if, part if of this. Were, Without it, that, there's no sense. There's nothing to make a film were, about. To make a film about. If it were, he'd just make that film. I appreciate that, yeah. but my point is, I realize that the movie can't be so interesting. We don't want to see anything else. Hmm. I appreciate that. My point is this. We have to see that scene so many times, uh -huh. and I don't like seeing that scene because it's so bad <laughs> okay. that that ultimately hinders the movie. And it would be one thing if I got this sense from William Greaves that this was this huge passion project of him, like he really wanted to tell the story, mm. even if the story's bad. It'd be like this Ed Wood kind of thing, yeah. where like his passion for it, even if he is whether it's intentionally in order to sort of subvert expectations and try to get his crew into this state of antagonism to sort of juice up his quasi-fictional documentary. Uh -huh. If he had done that in such a way to, uh, you know, just sort of make himself look bad for the purpose of the film, but it was still kind of guided by his passion for it, I would be fascinated. But I really don't get that sense of it. He actually comes across as rather blasé. He's, uh, in fact, he's very relaxed on the set. And uh -huh. I think he's, uh, again, 
this is something that uh, I think a lot of people mistake about movies that mm. given the way we sort of give our minds over to auteur theory, that the director has to be the one who's making a lot of really bold decisions. And yeah. I think a lot of that banality, a lot of that grind of actually making a film is really just figuring out. And it's a lot of people standing around saying, I don't know, let's just shoot it. And I think yeah. it does capture that extemporaneous creativeness. And I think it actually I don't think adds, it's fundamentally interesting. But it adds, a, no, it adds a, a very important kind of theatrical immediacy to a piece of cinema, which is something we don't usually get from film. That's something we get from theater. He's adding a, a theatrical immediacy to film. In show in showing it by right. adding all of these layers of film, theatrical so, immediacy isn't inherently fascinating, mm. though. There's a lot of theater that sucks. Yeah. So I just don't think that's necessarily gripping okay. in and of itself. I need it to be also gripping on top of its construct. And I find this movie to be a mm. bit of a meander, honestly. Like, and, I, and, and I, I'm not but, disinterested. Constructed to be a little bit of a meander, I think. But I, I think but to what end? And I just don't. I find it to be a bit cyclical. It's, it's so refreshing to me to okay. watch a film that does meander. Uh, okay. I'm. I'm you know, we, we sit down and we see these American drama films that are written by American screenwriters and have characters and plot and story. They're all about structure. Mm -hmm. Fuck structure. Life isn't structured that way. I can appreciate and, that. I'm all uh, for that. When, and, in fee, and indeed, when it comes right down to the day-to-day -day making of a film, film isn't really structured that way either. I think it's trying to capture mm -hmm. that extemporaneous chaos and creative process more than the product. But the creative process mm. is all focused on the idea of making a film. Is it not? Mm. Like we're, we're mm -hmm. the creative process and is, in this is case to he's create, and this, to create something. In this case, he's making a scene that he's still figuring out. We get to see him figure it out while he's shooting it. Uh huh. Sometimes that's the, uh, that's the way a lot of realist films are made. That's the way Mike Lee shoots. Okay. Sometimes, uh, I'm, from what I understand, uh, um, Woody Allen liked to shoot that way. Give people sort of a general outline and just have them improvise a lot. Yeah. By so, the way, there's a scene in, I think it's in this movie, maybe it's in the, no, it's in this movie, hmm. um, where uh, he says, okay, fine, just just improvise the scene. You know the main bullet points. Hmm. And then they improvise the scene, and the scene gets even worse. Yeah. It's, the it's, scene's so bad. Because the, and, I think, <laughs> so bad. and I think it's really fascinating because the actors he starts with are miscast, and they're actually not very good actors. And yeah. they talk about how they're going to play the role, and, uh, and they're actually not really sure what the characters are all about, and they kind of figure it out late in the day. And he's having these conversations. You can tell he is incredibly impatient with his actors mm -hmm. like he's trying to to say you know to give put, them the room direct that they them need, in a certain yeah. way give them the room they need but you know they're not really picking up on the hints and then at the end of the movie he switches actors it's better right away i am fast the yeah. thing that fascinated me the most honestly was the idea of the switching of the actors mm -hmm. where all of a sudden we're seeing the exact same scene from different it, it's not even different perspective it's just it, they just have a different energy, a different energy together. Mm. Um, and it's interesting to see, like, off camera, like, oh, they're so good together. But then off camera, he's a dick. Yeah. <laughs> he's not funny. Like, he thinks he's the funniest guy on the mm. set in actuality. Please shut up. We're trying to work. Yeah. Like, we're tired of your <laughs> shtick, man. It's, it's not great. I've probably been that guy on student film sets. It's not great. But, like, I, that part I thought was really, really interesting. And that's the part I thought was an interesting exploration of the creative process. It's not just going through the motions with the same actors over and over again, talking about how tedious filmmaking is, which I get it is not something mm. we see dramatized enough. And there's a novelty to that, but the idea of doing this with multiple actors 
to sort of find the scene organically that way and to see how it plays out in different perspectives. That I thought was actually really, really interesting. And I wish we'd seen more of that. Mm. It's interesting that the film ends in the middle of one of these, like the next one of these, there's like two or three mm. and we're in the middle of a fourth. And then it just says, coming up next, <laughs> symbiotychotaxoplasm, take two. Mm. And then he wouldn't do that until 2008 because he 2005. could not... 2005, yeah. sorry. Because he could not find anyone who wanted to screen this movie. He took it to Cannes where they screened the reels out of order. And nobody could tell. <laughs> yeah, and, like, and so people weren't interested because but, uh, it doesn't play. And as, as the years passed, it started to make sort of the art house circuit. It mm. attracted the attention of Steven Soderbergh and Steve Buscemi. Mm-hmm. Who, who saw uh, it at a screening at Sundance. Yeah, and it's like, oh, this is really, really fascinating. And Steven Soderbergh and Steve Buscemi had the fame and the clout to say, hey, let's make Take Two. Yeah, they, they got more eyes and, on the uh, original film, and they decided to make Take and, Two. And here's what's fascinating about Take Two. It takes place in 2005. A big They start the movie with sort of leftover footage from Take One. Yeah, I was actually a little disoriented and, yeah. by that, so because they, I they was st- like, wait a minute, they recreated like, everything? It's like still 1967 or 68 mm-hmm. when they're shooting the original. Mm-hmm. They're redoing the scene with the last actors that we saw, but they're mm-hmm. doing like something a little bit different. And then we pull back to... And this, this, in a weird way, this is kind of mind blowing mm-hmm. to the Q and A yeah. after the screening. Now, this is something you might see as a special feature on a DVD, but to put that in the movie yeah. is this weird sort of peeling back yet another layer of reality, saying a conversation with the audience is just another way of stripping the last bit of art off of the art, isn't it? Yeah, we're just going to pick. We're this just going to explain to everything. Nub. If yeah. you ever wondered, like. Was the film crew actually in on the gag? Was that whole thing where they decided to rebel scripted, mm-hmm. according to the Q&A? No, they didn't know. They mm-hmm. thought it was actually kind of a gag to film that and give it to William Greaves. And they didn't think it would end up in the movie. They just thought it would be kind of funny. Mm-hmm. And uh, then it did. And then it became a whole thing. Yeah. Um, but then, uh, yeah, they decided to gather the same actors back that we last saw mm-hmm. in 2005. And originally, and, this was going to be like a four or five part film. Like he wanted hmm. to keep going back to this, but when it never got distribution, that kind of fell through. Yeah, and, and, and William Greaves passed away in 2014, so yeah. he couldn't complete the film. He was in his 80s. He lived a long, very interesting life. Yes, he did. Uh, I'm very fascinated by William Greaves' life, by the way. Hmm. Just because I don't, you know, respond as well to symbiopsychotaxoplasm as Whitney or Steve Buscemi doesn't mean <laughs> I don't have a lot of respect for the filmmaker. Hmm. This one didn't quite do it for me. And, and Steve Buscemi, like he he plays one of the cameramen in Take Two and a Half. Well, He's playing himself. And, and, well, he's not, well, he is himself. Well, there's it's a, a scene, documentary. There's but, a yeah. scene in the, because what happens is after they do the Q&A, they decide to bring back those two actors for a scene that would take place like 30 years later when they met up again. 40 years later. Sorry, yeah. 40 years later when they meet up again and their lives are in a very different place and they have a really contrived, badly written scene. Mm. <laughs> and they have to try to make that shit work again. And Steve Buscemi is actually on the set filming it he's like one of the layers now of the film but there's a bit where uh william greaves is trying to direct the actors and he just says hey steve uh they're a little bit intimidated by working with steve buscemi right now could you mind taking a step back and steve buscemi's like yeah cool understood like you can tell that like buscemi's in there kind of as a fan who yeah, gets to yeah, shoot yeah. it, which is kind of endearing, actually. And you I, get this... I he probably asked not to be in the movie. I think he probably just wanted to shoot it just for the sake I, of shooting. I, I mean, he pro- I'm sure he knew that if he was mm. shooting Symbiopsychotaxoplasm, mm. he would be in Symbiopsychotaxoplasm because that's the nature of the beast. Yeah. 
Um, and I'm sure at that same token, having him in the movie would make it ostensibly a little more likely to find distribution mm. because he was never like a huge box office draw, but he had a lot of indie cred. Mm. So there would be a lot of places that would at the very least screen a movie for consideration at festivals or whatever, just because Steve Buscemi is in it. Damn. And I love Steve Buscemi. He's a great actor. Um, he's directed a and the fact features, that, yeah. And the fact that he, uh, uh, like, discovered symbiopsychotaxoplasm and then went on to do Living in Oblivion, another movie about the making of a low-budget movie, actually kind of unlocks Living in Oblivion a little bit better. <laughs> I mean, he didn't write and direct it, but, like, you get the sense that he's probably thinking about Symbiopsychotaxoplasm and like the process of filmmaking and how we're making a movie about the tedium of making a movie. Mm. And uh, I found that kind of revelatory. I thought that yeah. was kind of neat to discover. Um, so they, they shoot this scene and it's this terrible fucking scene about <laughs> how like they're reuniting after decades and he's just like, hey, listen, mm -hmm. I know we haven't seen each other for a long time, but. Could you adopt my child? Not even my child, uh, just like this person, this like friend's kid I've taken under my wing, but I'm dying now of AIDS and like I need you to take care of her sight unseen. Would you mind meeting her real fast in Central Park and forming an immediate bond that will carry you for the rest of your life? And I know, and I know you're in Europe and I'm, I called you all the way to New York for under the pretenses that we're just going to catch up, but I'm actually asking yeah. you this huge life changing favor. <laughs> terribly written scene it's a really it's, yeah. it's awkward and like it's just like you feel bad for the actors for trying to make it work mm. the actors are good though like they're actually doing a good job mm. the best part of symbiopsychotaxoplasm 2 is the part where they bring in the acting coach <laughs> which is really fucking weird because what she what she, her whole role yeah, is she, to get in their become, way and she becomes she starts like being the subconscious of the two other actors during the scene, so she's yelling at both of them while they're yelling at each other. People have, people have started saying on the set that they're underplaying the scene too much. It's a melodrama. They need to be more melodramatic, and they're just underplaying it they're playing like very naturally mm. and so she has come on and says here's what i'm gonna do you're gonna play the scene and then i'm gonna play all the emotions that you're not saying yeah and i'm just gonna stand there <laughs> and i'm gonna mimic every single body motion you yeah. do and even when like the other actress like gets so fed up like listen i'm done with this this is a stupid acting exercise and i'm gone the 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 lady is still doing her inner monologue <laughs> and it's really hilarious and then it turns out that whole bit was scripted mm. ha 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 Still a fun scene, though. Fun scene. Yeah, I really like that part. I like stories about actors acting because mm. the process of finding a character and rehearsing and trying out different versions of scenes, that can be really, really fascinating because usually in a movie, we only see the finished product, don't we? Yeah. We don't get to see all of the play. I'm fine with seeing all of the play as long as seeing all of the play is captivating. And my problem with the first Symbiopsychotaxplasm mostly stems from the fact that I don't ever want to see that scene. That scene sucks. Okay. Here, the scene sucks, but it sucks in kind of a fascinating way because it's <laughs> so contrived and it's so forced and they're struggling with it so much and they make such a big deal out of the acting coach trying to get them through this terrible scene that I actually found it really fascinating. And I actually love the way this one ended where they're going to try to shoot like the end of this scene, but it turns out they can't because part of the park is closed off for a marathon. Mm. So... 
they shoot a little bit of footage of everyone just sort of sitting next to a fountain, and then they all watch the marathon, and then the credits roll. Yeah. <laughs> I thought that was kind of sweet. Like, we're just going to make the most of it. There's something almost poetic about that. Well, uh, it's, it's like we're going to – that whole idea of shooting the rodeo. Yeah. There's, there's a rodeo in town. How are we going to pad out our movie? Just shoot the rodeo. Yeah. It's a good way to, to have some production value in a film that might not have any. Exactly. Uh, so they, they shoot it, and they realize, well, that's – we're just going to let it run past, and that's yeah. that. Uh, I, f- I feel like the first one also ended that way. They're doing this really uh, contrived scene that's not being acted very well and is not mm. written very well and kind of using it as a trampoline to examine the various layers of media interaction with the audience. And eventually it ends with a very long monologue uh, by a homeless man they meet in the park. Yeah, and what that an, part was interesting. He's so an, interesting. He's the best interest, part of that yeah, movie. Oh, and what an interesting guy that is. And they realize they could just point a camera at this guy and get a much more interesting movie than anything they're trying to do with all of this weird media commentary that they're doing. Which, see, on which one hand, seems seem, kind of brilliant. On the other hand, isn't that the ultimate criticism of the film? Well, that's that's the weird thing. You know, it, it actually becomes smarter the more futile it becomes. Perhaps, but they lucked into that, didn't they? Well, but that's that's the nature of documentary film. I appreciate that's the nature of documentary mm-hmm. film, but oftentimes the nature of documentary film is we find out what's more interesting, and then we don't bother with all the stuff that wasn't interesting. <laughs> we just show you the interesting stuff. That yeah. guy who is clearly has a lot of mental health issues mm-hmm. and has a, clearly has a troubled past and says things that are clearly not accurate. Um, and he's talking about you know all these adventures that he's had in his life and how fascinating he is, and um, he is fascinating. He's a fascinating, mm. probably just probably very troubled person. I was riveted by every single thing that he said uh, in a way that maybe sort of condemned the rest of the film for not pointing a documentary at something more mm. fascinating. Mm. Maybe the idea that's that cinema is tedium is apt, just accurate. Hmm. But maybe tedium is just kind of tedious. <laughs> and maybe that's a little uh, inescapable. Yeah. I, uh, so, sometimes I bristle that a film wants me to be interested. Mm-hmm. And they try to uh, pretend that what they're doing is interesting. And that can be kind of insulting, can't it? It very much can. Hmm. So uh, in in rather than drawing me in, in pushing me out, I'm mm-hmm. engaging with the film on a level I wouldn't otherwise. I can appreciate I feel that like you have that response, but can you, yeah. can you see why I find that no, simply just not interesting? Absolutely, and okay. there, there's other films that also try to push an audience away in other ways. You know, look at something like a gross-out film, like the Human Centipede movie. Yeah, where those, it's like, we are, dare you to watch yeah, this movie. Yeah, those are supposed to be, like, sort of pushing you away. And if you're looking, it's like, ha fuck you, you're watching this disgusting thing. Right. Well, you're showing it to me, you dick. Um, this is sort of the, the art house documentary version of, of that impulse. <laughs> If you will, this might be the art house human centipede. Yeah, this might be the only connection between symbiopsychotaxoplasm and the human centipede you'll ever hear. But I'm proud to have made uh, that analogy. I, I can no, I can appreciate your point. Where they're basically just saying, if you came here for something conventional, mm. if you came here for something that is attempting to be riveting. This is you're not going to find it here, and yeah, you're going to have to you're going to have to find your own way in, and you're going to have to think about what it is to be riveted, what the right. function of these things are, and you're now you're engaging and, with it as a conceptual piece. And I can appreciate mm. that, but I'm watching the entire movie, and I'm never finding my in because I mm. don't find it exciting enough in its vagaries mm. 
to capture my imagination to make this seem truly exciting. I think the second one's actually very interesting. I think the second mm-hmm. one is actually a bit more varied. Uh, I got more interested in the acting performances. Well, and once they add that extra modern layer of yeah. we're going to go back and comment on something that exists already, yeah. then, well, and, you're a critic, so I, you have a little bit more... And ironically, there's less conflict in that one mm-hmm. because there's even, like, they even try to recreate that whole bit where everyone who's like behind the scenes on the film is like turning on William Greaves, they gather them all together to just say, is this where we turn on him? Because we've seen symbiopsychotaxoplasm. We know that's part of the gimmick. So should we be saying that? Or in not saying that, are we playing into his shtick? What do we do here? Mm. What is this scene that we're in right now? That was way more interesting than just seeing a bunch of film folk just sort of wax rhapsodic about how they don't trust their director when I see no reason to dispute that. I just sort of, I, for me, I don't see as many layers in the original Symbiopsychotaxoblasm. For me, I find the movie very straightforward. Mm-hmm. That's not to say it's without merit, but I actually found it very straightforward, whereas the second one I actually saw a bit more complexity, a bit more layer, and I ultimately got more out of that one. Mm. That's, but, that's fair. I'm glad yeah. you watched both of them anyway. Yeah, I, I well, think of course that, I would watch both of yeah, them. We yeah. said we'd watch both of them. Yeah. Um, anyway, listen, uh, uh, I'm curious. I know some people said they were going to watch this along with us. Um, I'm curious what your takes are mm. on Symbiopsychotaxoplasm. It's certainly the kind of film that demands personal connection. Uh, not, maybe not in like a deeply moving, like, you know, Douglas Sirk kind of way, but in a, you need to find your own inroad into this film. What did you find? Yeah. I'd be very curious to hear from you. Uh, we are on Twitter at Critic Acclaim. You can tweet us there or I'm at William Bibiani. Whitney is at Whitney Seibold. Seibold. Uh, you can also leave us a comment on our Patreon page, patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network, where you can also, if you sign up, vote for future episodes and get tons of exclusive podcasts that are not available here on our main channel. Uh, or you can email us letters at critically Uh We would love to read your letter on a future episode of We've Got Mail uh, about this or anything else you want to talk about. Um, any last thoughts on Symbiopsychotaxoplasm before we move uh, on? No, it's quite late. I think we can wrap it up. Okay, fair <laughs> enough. Well, listen, thank you everybody for listening. Uh, we'll be back next week. We decided uh, after Symbiopsychotaxoplasm to go in the complete opposite direction. And uh, check out some films that one or both of us had never seen on Disney+. Plus, Specifically, live-action films, since those are tend to be the Disney films people talk about a little less. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, I'm actually surprised this was on the list. I thought everyone had seen this film, but it turns out Whitney had never seen Cool Runnings, and that was a runaway winner of that poll. <laughs> cool runaway winner. People really want Whitney Seibold to see Cool Runnings. Uh, All right, a movie so, I saw a bunch of times as a kid, haven't revisited since like 1998. <laughs> so I'm curious if it holds up. I remember liking it, but we shall see. And that we shall see next week on Critically Acclaimed in the Streaming Club. We'll also be reviewing a ton of new releases uh, that we will discover over time. I didn't write anything down. I'm sure they're great. <laughs> There's we'll some other out. films coming out. We'll review them. Uh, but again, patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network. Very special thank you to all of our patrons who keep this show going. We couldn't and wouldn't do it without you. And we are incredibly grateful to you for this opportunity to share our thoughts about cinema and uh, to hear your thoughts as well on our various other platforms. Uh, and um, yada, yada. Oh, and Whitney has a new radio show that will be That's debuting the same day right. as this podcast. Got uh, pushed back a couple of days because we were waiting for this very nice artwork. Uh, that, to that, go along with it. 
that actually just came in. So, yeah. Uh, so it'll be it'll be up and running. It has some artwork uh, by uh, Androgyny Art uh, Jesse Ladina, and it's about uh, people who are going through a dead companion's belongings uh, in her abandoned apartment. They find an old video cassette with her on it. Turns out she's psychic. She could predict the future, and she can converse with them via the video cassette. And mm-hmm. she makes one final request of them. Someone already uh, pointed out that this is a bit like the Doctor Who episode. Blink, you wrote this first. I, I yeah, I wrote this quite a while ago. Yeah, I, I think um, you wrote this a couple of years before that episode Blink came out. So okay, yeah. Based on the timeline you gave me, I think you mm. beat him by a couple of years. So good job. Yeah, I'm, I'm I'm smarter than Doctor Who. They should, hey Doctor Who, hire me as a writer. Clearly, I'm ahead of Actually, you. Actually, I would love to see what Whitney Seibel could do with Doctor Who. He's got a weird imagination. That he'd be a really good fit. Um, anyways, thank you everybody for listening. Uh, uh, stay safe, stay sane. Uh, we really appreciate you, and um, never forget, everyone's a critic. I wanna go to the midnight show. I'm sorry, what?